Good morning, everyone. I didn't know which YouTube. I was in mood for YouTube. Um, I like It's a Beautiful Day, but that's a very uplifting song, and I'm not so sure it's a beautiful day, given everything that's going on out there. Um, we have a tremendous um, speaker in store for today, Julian Brigden. And I'm really excited to um, hear what uh, Julian has to say. Before we get started, um, <laughs> I was just looking, um, I was reminded of the uh, network, the 1976 film, with that classic, classic uh, rant. By, it's in Howard Beale, I believe. And it's really kind of funny. <laughs> I was reading actually what he said. We all know the punchline, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. But if you actually listen to what he says in totality, it's amazing. He could have been saying this today. Let me just read a few sentences here. I don't have to tell you that things are bad. Everybody knows that things are bad. <laughs> See the Michigan Consumer <laughs> Confidence Survey, worst ever on record. It's a depression. Well, we're not there yet. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. Well, we're not there that. Okay, now comes a good part. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Sound familiar? Banks are going bust. We don't have that yet. Shopkeepers keep a gun under their counter. Punks are running wild in the street. And there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do. I'm sorry to laugh. This is just so prophetic. This is 1976. This is 46 years ago. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. And we sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like every, everything everywhere is going crazy. So we don't go out anymore. I guess if you're in midtown Manhattan, that's true. I used to live in the city. We sit in the house and slowly the world we are living in is getting smaller. And all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel belted radials. And I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I want you to protest. I want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. Here comes the punchline. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. I repeat, I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. You can't make this stuff up. All I know is that first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I am a human being. God damn it. Jim Cramer, God damn it. Oil stocks have value. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want you all to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window. Open it and stick out your head and yell, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. From Raul Powell or Kathy Wood or Tremoth. I want you to get up right now, sit up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, Jim Cramer. Gary Gensler, things have to change. But first, you have to get mad. You have to say, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Then we will figure out and what to do about the depression and the inflation and the oil crisis. There you go, oil crisis. Forgot that one. 
But first, as Mark Cahodes would say, get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell and say it. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. All right, I'm getting a little bit jacked here. But there's a serious message of what I'm saying. The it has to stop. This is what populism is all about. And I'm not political. I'm talking talk maybe it's manifested itself in the political sphere the last few years, whether it's in, in the United States or it's in Europe or elsewhere. People know that they're being lied to. People know that the system is not working. This has to stop. I tweeted out some stuff this morning. Freaking Coinbase executives pocketing a billion two since the IPO. I'm sure they're lawyered up properly. They're not going to get in any trouble. But on what planet is that? should that type of behavior be legal? Or is it ethical? Yeah, yeah. The CEO bought a $133 million house. I know. I, I put that in the year. feed. I mean, <laughs> seriously. And then you get some fucking sanctimonious banker from Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or some asshole lawyer from Cravath Swain telling you that no law was breaking. Yeah, because they papered the whole fucking thing in a way where they're not going to get in trouble. This has to stop. Enough. Ralph Poole, Jim Cramer, Kathy Wood, get your ass in here. Have you no shame? Have you no decency? It's disgusting. I suspect most people in this room are guided by the credo, do the, you do the right thing, not what you can get away with. These people belong in jail. Elon Musk is a criminal. This is ridiculous. This has to stop. And you know something? It's all going to come crashing down. It doesn't matter what I think or you think. It's happening. Mr. Market is taking care of it. This whole thing is a goddamn fugazi. The most reckless monetary policy in history. Lowest interest rates in 5,000 years. Unsavory, unscrupulous characters. Get Jim Cramer's ass in here if anybody knows him. I'm tired of this bullshit. This is not a game. This is our lives. This is society. This is the economy. You've never heard me get angry before like this. I'm pissed. Get David Solomon from Goldman Sachs in here. Get those, shut down the Cartoon Network. Put Mark Cahodes in charge of the SEC. This is ridiculous. All right, enough. So, here we are. In case anyone's wondering what to do right here, right now, although we never make picks about day-to-day or week-to-week, I would say the markets are more dangerous now and are more overvalued and in a worse position now than they were a week ago. We've said it once, we've said it a million times in this room, trying to call day-to-day and week-to-week counter-trend moves is a fool's errand. The market was kind of behaving all right through Wednesday of last week. And then all of a sudden on Thursday, somebody turned the lights out. So again, it just goes to prove how impossible, how difficult, how impossible it is to call these moves. The investment, the investment is being short risk assets. Sell is not a four letter word. Part of the problem people are having is things have moved so quickly. Prices have gapped so ferociously. As Marco Otis said on Sunday in the room, 
never seen anything like this before. No, we haven't. And more than the price movements, it's the speed with which they're occurring. Because when you have people hedged, or they have option strategies, you look at correlations, things move like this so quickly, there's no time to adjust. And I suspect this is going to get much worse. Do not get anchored on a recent price. Don't say, as Jim Cramer would have you believe, you know, 50 down from 450, maybe we should buy some Coinbase. Maybe he's not saying that, but people look at where the price was and they say, oh, it's oversold. And again, you've heard me say this before. This line comes from the great Frank Tuckshare, a retired chartist from uh, Wellington. What's the true definition of oversold? Oversold is, I forgot to sell it and it went down without me. Just like overbought is, I, I, I forgot to buy it and it went up without me. To say something is oversold is really a very arrogant statement. I mean, I kind of know what they're talking about. Like, it went down at, you know, uh, multiple standard deviation move over a certain period of time. I get that. But more fundamentally, when you say something is oversold, it's arrogant because it presumes you know where it's going to be. I mean, if I were to say to you, hey, you know, Enron's at 50, it was 75 a week ago. You'd say, well, it's oversold. Well, what if it's going to zero? Or alternatively, you know, if Amazon was 100, it was 1,000, it was 800 a week ago, and I say it's overbought, well, what if it's going to 4,000? So it's what the uh, psychologists refer to as the anchoring effect, the recency bias. And that's part of the problem that you have here. You combine that with the horrible, horrible information and advice given by the talking heads on mainstream media, uh, uh, mainstream media uh, the investment banking houses, the Fidelis and Vanguards of the world, and then this nonsense, the democratization of finance. Whenever you hear the term democratization, you should run, not walk. Democratization of finance. How about democratization of open heart procedures? Oh, I watched a YouTube video and I got some, you know, Dr. Mount Gox uh, telling me how to do these. I, I watched the video. I, I got this. Don't worry about it. Okay. That's what people are doing, this Robin Hood nonsense. All right. The stock market is not a game. It's been made a game. And you have the likes of, of, of Ken Griffin, you know, lining his pockets with payment for order flow and all this nonsense. This thing should be illegal. It's certainly unethical. It should be illegal. And either we don't have the proper laws or the laws aren't being enforced. And whether it's because of regulatory capture or complacency or stupidity, and frankly, when I look at the, uh, at the Fed, for instance, in conducting monetary policy, I think it's just stupidity. I don't know what the hell they're doing. But in some cases, like you look at crypto and knockox, actually, before we get, uh, before we get um, uh, Julian to speak, I don't know where he went. I'm going to have to call him. Um, we can talk a little bit about crypto for just, just five minutes. You know, I, I always try to stay away from crypto and um, Tesla. But crypto really is top of mind now for markets. But in the case of crypto, as Matt Cox, you've explained many times, has been massive regulatory capture. And you have things like, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried with FTX, I think being the second biggest donor of the Biden campaign, five million bucks uh, last election. His mother, a major uh, Stanford law professor, major player in the Biden election campaign. And again, I don't want to get into politics. Both sides do it. So this is not Democrat versus Republican. The public service is not, the public interest is not being served. 
whether it's by the regulatory agencies. And, 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 that, and that's, really, that's really the problem. So you have this unholy alliance of vested interests, politicians, regulatory interests, regulatory agencies, all conspiring to no one standing up for the public. And you have the likes of Elon Musk, Ken Griffin, Shamath, Brian Armstrong, CNBC. They're just scamming people. This has to stop. It will stop. Because you know what? It doesn't matter what any of us say or think. Mr. Market's taking care of it. So anyway. I just pinned uh, I pinned Jim Cramer, literally called the top tick. Like he tweeted, uh, we like Coinbase to 475. And if you look at the minute that that tweet was posted, that was the day they went public. And it rallied hard like the first 10 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever. And at that exact time, that was a top tick, you know, and that's, that's, that's terrible. That's extremely irresponsible and dangerous, you know, dangerous behavior. Cause yep. he literally led so many people to the slaughter with that. Yes, 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 yes. And, um, there's no remorse. Yeah, Matt Cox, there's no accountability. There's no remorse. There's no humility. He just goes on from one disaster to the next. I mean, this is the same. It's unbelievable. You know, the title of the room we had on Saturday was something to the effect stocks are going to have a very nice summer. It's according to Jim Cramer. It was a Jim Cramer quote from May 30. May 30, two weeks ago. Stocks are going to have a very nice summer. And the ink wasn't even dry on that. And the market collapses. Then you turn on CNBC and he's like, there's no accountability at all. He's just on to the next talking point. And, you know, um, they always say you need to be able to walk the walk. Uh, I'm sorry, talk the talk. If you talk the talk and, and and just pretend, you know, exude confidence, like you really know what you're talking about. Um, that's all you need to do. And that's what Kramer does. Um, so this has to stop. It will stop. I suspect um, CNBC, his CNBC ratings are collapsing right now. I haven't seen the data, but I'm pretty sure they are. They've collapsed in the past. So the market's gone down. He needs to retire. He's a good guy. I like Jim, but he's just in a really bad place psychologically. He can't get anything right. And, and I've been in those situations. We've all been in those situations. Um, you just need to chill out and, 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 you know, maybe take some time off and clear your head and you can come back. Tur is human. I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at him just because he made a mistake. But the relentless, what, what, what I really have issue with, Jim Cramer and Raul, I mean, Raul, he was the master enabler. Here's a guy with, I don't know, a million Twitter followers. Real Vision has, I don't know, how many subscribers. He's a smart guy. The guy used to work at Goldman Sachs, for Christ's sakes. Um, and he just, you know, he goes out there, he shills. He bags all these people, whether he whether he knew what he was doing, which I suspect he did, or he's just like Kramer. He's just he craves the adulation. He's a narcissist and wants the hero worship and wants to be relevant with the young crowd. So he's cool, you know, and he's tweeting about all this, this trip crypto garbage. All right. Whatever. I mean, there are laws against this sort of thing, maybe not in the Cayman Islands, but certainly laws against this sort of thing here in the United States. And what he did, whether it was unethical or illegal, I don't know. I don't know what goes on in the Caymans. 
but none of none of us were brought up in a way where we would engage in behavior like that. And then the worst part, the worst part of it, once he get caught, once he gets caught with his pants down, he starts erasing tweets. He starts gaslighting people. He denies he ever said it. And I'm sure all of you've seen, they've been all over the internet. You know, people have taken some of his uh, comments and, and, and videos and posted them, and it's just like. Like, dude, like, Raul, like, can you not see? I mean, just just look at what you said. The guy's an out-and-out out liar. He's a liar. Whether he broke a law or not, I don't know, but he is a liar. Kathy Wood? Kathy Wood? She's a master marketeer. I don't know how she has the conscience or temerity or legal advice to get up in public and despite being down 75% from the peak, say that my stocks are, you know, are going to go up 50 or 60% a year for the next five years. I mean, I've worked at Fidelity. I've worked in real institutions. Anybody who's run real money, it's like, you, you, you can't say shit like that. But she does. And the extraordinary thing is, despite the fact that her fund is down 60, 65% this year, 60%, whatever the number is, she's actually gotten money in. And this is where the Fed comes into play and where they're culpable. We've had the most reckless monetary policy in history. All risk has been removed from the market. Buy the dip. Tina, FOMO. And I've said repeatedly, you've heard me say it. Tina's dead, FOMO's dead, buy the dip is dead. It's all dead. But people are conditioned to buy the dip. And so you get this Minsky moment. And the Fed, people are worried about the Fed making a policy error. And I have no idea what they're going to do tomorrow. I mean, people are now saying 75 basis points. Who knows? I, I hate these rooms. I hate these rooms. It's like sports talk radio. I have everyone coming. Well, you know, I think the Fed's going to raise interest here at 25 basis points. I mean, who the hell knows? They talk a lot, but they don't say very much. Let's talk about Fed policy. I have no idea. So I don't spend a lot of time on it. So whether they raise rates 50 basis points, 75 basis points, 100 basis points, I don't know. Market may go up, may go down day to day, week to week. I don't, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. Yeah, that's like astrology. Yeah, it just, it's just like who predicted, as bearish as I've been for as long as I've been, who predicted that the market was going to crash last Thursday, Friday, or Monday? I didn't. The investment is the short side. And these jackasses on the Cartoon Network. I mean, they had a kid on last Friday. It was like at 8.30 when the CPI number came out. I really watched CNBC, but I tuned in just to get an idea what was going on. This guy's like 28 years old. I don't think he's ever been in a gym in his life. And you could tell he's reading from talking points. Pimply-faced kid who does nothing. Reading from talking points. This is what passes for analysis? No. This is like CNBC is like the people network of financial media. Just turn off CNBC. Jim Cramer, go home. It is a waste of time. I will give props to Bloomberg uh, Television. I have a lot of time for uh, Lisa Abramovitz, Tom Kane, Jonathan Farrow. Try it. Just turn off CNBC and put on Bloomberg TV for a few months and see what happens. So this has to stop and it will stop. Um, Mount Cox, could you just speak for a few minutes? Give us an update because uh, I need to call Julian. I don't know where he is. 
Um, he's supposed to be the, the guest speaker today. Um, could you talk a little bit about, um, and go slowly, please, because not everybody in the room knows as much as you do about the crypto. And again, I'm only, we're only allowing the crypto discussion because it's relevant today. Um, you and I go back over a year ago. I just, for everybody in the room doesn't know this, Mount Cox and I and a couple others, we did groundbreaking work. It was over a year ago. It was May of last year. Hard to imagine we've known each other so long, Mount Cox. <laughs> Time passes quickly when you're having fun. And we did a lot of work, and Mount Cox is deep in the weeds, has been following uh, crypto for years. He's forgotten more about the minutia than I'll ever know. I'm just the old money fiat, the old money fiat currency market structure guy. And my head explodes every time he tells me the minutiae about how it's been manipulated over the years and so on and so forth. So, Mount Cox, rather than going into all the ancient history, could you please explain, and this is what would be helpful, explain to people briefly what happened to Luna, what now has happened to Celsius, what, what Coinbase is now doing with, I think, what, with putting a 24 or 40-hour embargo or delay on withdrawals. And... Why is this relevant for Bitcoin and explain what's going on with the miners and how money has to keep coming in to keep the Ponzi going? So I would just ask you to go slowly, speak slowly, because a lot of this is very detailed stuff. You've explained it to me a million times. I got a headache listening to it. But I think a few minutes on what is going on, I think will be very helpful. In the meanwhile, I'm going to so, try to find I'm going to I'm going to try to find Julian Brigden and, and I'll be back in, back in a couple of minutes. Go go for it, Matt Cox. So in order to understand crypto, you need to understand that it works in cycles all the way back from like 2012. And any, any run-up has always been due to a Ponzi scheme buying coins 24-7. So like a, a scheme built on top of the crypto ecosystem all the way back the last 10 years. And when I realized that, I was like, oh shit, this whole thing is, you know, fugazi. And you, now you have Luna who was one of these schemes, they, they were promising 20% if you staked. Uh, stake, if you gave your coins to Luna, they guaranteed like 20% interest. And you don't have to be, you know, a financial genius to realize that that's unsustainable. So that uh, that, that that Ponzi blew up and it was like, the, it was a top 10 coin. So it was a huge deal, like probably the worst thing that ever happened in crypto. And now you have this Celsius thing, which is also a Ponzi scheme exploding. And there's still a few more out there uh, that has to be blown up. There's like three or four smaller ones. But anyway, the recent decline, it, it seemed like someone was selling in, in a malicious way to get the price down. It wasn't sold in a, in a clever way. I was looking at the sales and it was they swamped the order book with that small market sales so, so that's how you because they can do spoofing and layering and all this market manipulation they'll use any tactic and so they use the tactic to drive down the price um so i don't know george does quickly touch on the mining part like why that's a ponzi yeah can you speak to the mining part and why yeah. money has to keep coming in just to keep the price up yeah so Every four years, right now, it's 900 Bitcoin that's being mined. You need real money coming in to pay for those coins because you need to pay electricity bills. So right now, it's 900 times 20K. So it's like a little, little less than 20 million. You need that of fiat every day just to maintain the price because the difficulty adjusts. So it becomes harder to mine these coins. 
So it, it's more or less the cost of maintaining the network is that you need about $20 million coming in every day. Not Tether, you need real dollars. That's why people call it a Ponzi scheme because there's no other instruments who have this financial leak. Right, and so um, Mount Cox... If you take the entire ecosystem, it's probably like 50 million. You take Ethereum, that's still proof of work. They're not proof of stake yet. They they said they're going to be proof of stake since the white paper in 2014, but they're still not. They're still proof of work. Dogecoin is all the same. It's all the same garbage. So, um, could you, so, so, Mount Cox, speak about Tether and the stable coins. And do you think we're finally drawing closer to the day where inevitably Tether finally blows up? And what would the importance of that be? Uh, I've given up uh, hoping for that. I-, I was thinking all of last year that they were, you know, the demise was imminent because they wanted so many investigations by th- authorities. But uh, th- the game theory doesn't really play out for like a natural run on Tether because the way they set it up, I can go into details if if you want to get bored. No, no, it, it's not. It's not. And could you yeah. speak, so, so it, 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 Mount, Mount Cox, could you speak a little bit about the regulators and what they're doing and more importantly, what they're not doing? Like what yeah, is like going that. on with, what's going on with, you know, Heather, talk about Heather Pierce and Gary Gensler and, and all, like what the hell is going on? So the CFTC, the Commodities Future Exchange, that's basically been a crypto lobby for the fa- past five years. They approved the original ETF, like the futures ETF in 17 or 18. And um, so, and the guy who used to lead that, they call him Crypto Daddy. He's called Giancarlo or something. So he left the CFTC and now they're posting pictures with Sam Bankman Freed. Like CFTC are tweeting out pictures with Sam Bankman Freed. Like, like, but they deleted that picture because people were like, um, aren't you supposed to regulate these guys? Like, what are you doing here? So the CFTC are, and they want to control crypto. They want the authority because they, they believe it's a commodity. So they feel they have the authority. But then you also have the SEC, which have not, I mean, they've been a total disgrace. You have crypto mom, Hester Pierce, approving every spot Bitcoin ETF that's being applied for. She's a top five uh, SEC person. She's top five. She's a commissioner. There's five commissioners at the SEC. So it's terribly corrupt. And, you know, worst, worst of all, Biden, that his mother's, uh, you know, advisor, she led the Biden campaign, by the way. So she teaches law at Stanford and she led the Biden. It's just, yeah, I'm very, I'm very disheartened about the, the whole thing. It kind of it kind of makes you lose faith in the system. It it, it really yeah. does. And the it rule really of law, just and also Elon yeah. Musk and all this. It's like people have to lose money before things happen. You know. Yeah. So, um, all right, let's let's get off of crypto. Hopefully, Julian's going to show up here before too long. Um, so let's just move on. I, I reached out to him. I don't know where he is. Um, at any rate, so markets have been, um, you know, shocked. I guess whatever by the CPI number. And what's important always is uh, the great Stan Weinstein always says, 
and others have borrowed the line without uh, a citation. It's not the news that counts, but the reaction to the news. And there's just been this hope, this dream, this enduring belief that the Fed wouldn't have to do anything, that you know, inflation would just kind of go away on its own, and hasn't been the case. And finally, the light bulb went off on uh, Friday because of the uh, in response to the CPI number. We've been tweeting about this for uh, months. We had a fantastic room a couple of weeks ago with um, uh, James Ferguson, who spoke about uh, how, um, you know, this is not transitory, this inflation situation. And again, I like Jim Bianco's definition of transitory. Transitory is the idea that you don't have to do anything and inflation will go down by itself. Will go down sufficiently by itself. And that's most definitely not the case. Whether you want to get into it, it's going to be at 7% or 8% or 14%. It's not the point. The point is to get down to the 2 or 3% that the Fed wants to be at. It's not going to happen by itself. And if you look at my Twitter feed, I retweeted something from January. January. Um, it was a great uh, article from uh, Stephen Roche, uh, who's a former uh, big shot in Morgan Stanley Asia, who's a personal friend. Look at my Twitter feed. Uh, I posted this on February 4. I write, uh, read my thread from the other day. Stephen Roach and Henry Kaufman speak the truth. Jerome Powell and the Fed are clueless, ignorant financial history, politicized, and lacking in, in intellectual integrity. And a few days earlier, I had tweeted out, Central San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank President Mary Daly said the reaction on Monday said that the reaction-based central bank, this is from, from February now, on February 1st, said that the reaction-based central bank is not behind the curve and the hawkish policy shift should be gradual amid surging consumer prices. These people are clueless. They really are. They're clueless and they're politicized. And so there's no, there should be no surprise um, to, for anyone that this happened. The bigger surprise is the market was as complacent as it was for months. And so, okay, that's great, George. Take a victory lap. Where are we now? We still have a highly, highly stimulative monetary policy. Where they raise rates 50 basis points, 75 basis points. I mean, you think a 25 basis point different, different, difference really matters with you know, the price of diesel at seven bucks? I mean, you know, the Fed can't drill for more oil. They can't grow more wheat. These problems have taken years in the making. This energy situation, and look at my feed, or go follow Eric Nuttall. I tweeted, tweeted out something from Eric yesterday. He, he, he updated his thesis on where we are with energy. This is not going away. This is not going away. So the Fed can do whatever it wants. The only way you're going to get the oil price down is with a big recession. So as those of you who watched my rant a week, a month ago, uh, the podcast I did with Jack Farley, it's a great interview. It's one of the few that I've done. You just get to see, to hear me, uh, in this format. Um, but that was a podcast and I laid it all out and you know, you got a choice either they do what they need to do to get inflation down and, uh, giving us a recession. That's going to be disastrous for stock market earnings. Or, or they don't. Jerome Powell's unable to chat, find his inner Paul Volcker. 
and uh, inflation continues up. Now, watch what they do, not what they say. This week will be the first week the balance sheet actually comes down, I believe. I, I, I think there's a runoff on some securities. Again, I'm not a Fed watcher. But for all the talk about getting tough on inflation and this and that and everything else, they've done diddly squat so far. So watch what they do, not what they say. So either we get a recession or they blink and they don't have the colonies to do it because they're scared of the market going down. And they kind of, you know, they talk to talk, but they don't walk to walk. And, you know, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing the stock market getting blown up, blown up? And crude's at 120, WTI's at 123 this morning. All right, I see that gas is down big, but WTI's at 123 this morning. It's gone up the last few days. Bond yields surged yesterday. They're up again this morning. So no Goldilocks for you. No Goldilocks. So no Goldilocks. You either get recession or you get Weimar inflation. Take your pick. Either one is not good for equities. And I think it's inevitable we're going to get a... Um, we're going to get a, uh, uh, a recession probably out of all this. But again, I don't want to debate recession, recession, recession. They're going to raise failure. And that's not the point. The point is, I, mean, I don't know what to do with it. I, won't, I don't make money, money, okay? And so the trade that I've been recommending since last summer, long energy, using the XOP as a placeholder, and shorting art, Kathy Wood, donkey on Kathy, as a placeholder for wild-ass speculation, that trades up 400% in the last year. 400%. We don't make picks in this room. I'll talk about sectors, market direction, ETFs. I don't like to get caught up in individual names. Once in a while, I can't resist. So my opinions, you know, on, on, on Robinhood, we recommended that at 42 last summer. It's now seven. Tesla. Coinbase, I think I was started saying to short at 300 and there are a few others. But the point is, forget about how much they've gone down recently. That's not the point. The point is, where are we right now? If you came down from planet Mars and someone said to you, you know, here's Robin Hood or here's Tesla. Here are the fundamentals. This is the valuation. This is what's happening to earnings estimates. This is what the chart looks like. What would you do? Or forget about the chart for a second. You just say, this is Tesla. It's got a $600 billion market cap. It's got $80 billion in revenues. It's on seven or eight times sales. All the other auto stocks are on half of sales. They have no moat. Um, they're losing market share. Blah, blah, blah. What would you do? And you'd be like, no, I'm not buying that. Forget about, oh, well, you know, I bought, and then some knucklehead retail investor bought it at 1000 and it's had a 40% off sale and he doesn't know what happened, hit him, and you know, he doesn't want to sell it because it's, it's oversold. It's just the wrong way to look at it. So I think we've got a long ways to go on the downside. I mean, I've gone through the Kathy Wood holdings just as an example. There's nothing remotely close, remotely close to a price point that I'd want to buy it at. So I, I, think, I think we've got a tremendous, uh, a tremendous uh, more downside here. The short side's the investment. You know, if you want to aggravate yourself, just hold, uh, you know, uh, hold cash. Yeah, I know you're losing money on inflation. But more importantly, what you have to realize, you know, in a bear market, there are no winners. In a bear market, he who wins is the one who loses the least. And just as in a bull market, the hardest thing to do, as Richard Russell would say, is to stay fully, stay fully invested. In a bear market, the hardest thing to do is to stay out. Stay out. And the other piece of advice I'll give people 
if you're caught wrong-footed and you're losing money, sell. Sell to the point of sleep. Famous quote from Jesse Livermore. It'll let that sit there for a week or so. Mm, you know, if you go a few days and the mark keeps going down and you're out, you go, hmm, this is good. You start to free up the mental capital so you can be more clear-headed about what to do. You never want to be in a position where the where the position owns you and you don't and you're not owning the position. And you get on the wrong side of, of something. That's what happens. Trust me, been there, done that myself. I know how this works. I have a PhD in this and being on the wrong side of things. So you need to have, you need to preserve your mental capital that is far more important than financial capital. And the other thing you've got to realize is the reason someone like Howard Marks or Warren Buffett, well, I have such a good long-term record, is not because they're, you know, the brightest investor on the planet and their earnings estimates are better than anybody else's and so on and so forth. It's because when the hour gets late and liquidity is flowing, the valuations get crazy and people are buying because they shouldn't be buying and they get fully invested. Maybe they're on margin. Buffett, Klarman, Marx, et cetera, the whole cash. And what you have to understand, this is a very important point. We haven't discussed this before. What you have to understand, it's by holding cash. You, you are, you are, Cash is an offensive asset allocation decision. You're putting yourself in a position, I hate this word, you're empowering yourself to be able to have the capital, the balance sheet, to be able to buy crap when, when there's blood in the streets. And so the reason, the reason Howard Marks or Warren Buffett do well is because when the proverbial hits the fan, they're there with liquidity. And when Goldman Sachs or Bank of America or GE, whoever it is, 2008-9, is dying for liquidity, they can come to Buffett and Buffett's, you know, got all this capital. He's like, all right, I'll lend you money at X percent and I'm going to have some warrants, blah, 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 or convertible preferred in very favorable terms. And so it's hard to hold cash. I know it's hard to hold cash when, the, when, when FOMO is, 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 is really getting at you, but it's only by holding cash that you're creating the ability to buy stuff when the proverbial hits the fan. And trust me, I've, 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 I'm human like all you guys. I've lost so much money on stupid things. You have no idea. You have no idea. So be defensive. I've said this once. I've said it numerous times. I think people are going to be surprised by how much interest rates go up and by how much equities go down. I hope the brilliant John Roke, he hates when he uses that adjective in front of his first name. I think brilliance becomes his new first name. <laughs> The brilliant John Roke, who was calling for 3% bond yields back at the turn of the year on the 10-year, when it was like 150, you know, a week or two ago, he, he came out and said it's going to four. I'm with John. So we have, we have this toxic combo of rising rates, you know, which is a function of inflation still being out of control. Oh, we haven't talked about the yen. Huh. I, I tweeted this out yesterday. I got a million follows, a million likes. Here's the world. Here's, here's the world's biggest creditor nation, and their currency is trading like toilet paper. You think it's the Argentine peso or the Turkish lira or whatever? This is serious stuff. Maybe the average individual investor doesn't appreciate it, but this is serious stuff. 
And I, I see we got a lot of smart cookies in the room. I'm hoping Shrub will come in here and talk about that. And just looking around, I see you've got three aces up on stage. That's great. Dave Nikoski, you were wonderful. You were in here a month or two ago, and you were right as rain. It'd be great to hear from you if you, if you wouldn't mind raising your hand coming up as well. This has the makings of an absolutely fabulous, fabulous room. There's plenty more. I'm just only looking at the first few rows. It was in the room today. But anyway, the yen, the yen spiraling out of control because the Japanese, the BOJ wants to stay easy while the world rates are going up in the rest of the world. And you say, well, what's what's so important about that? Well, that, that that's, this is the world's biggest creditor country. These are the guys who used to buy our bonds. They don't anymore. And furthermore, to the extent that Chinese, China and other Asian countries are trading partners and competitors with the Japanese, this is a huge deal. And if you're Xi Jinping, you know, or, or, or you're, you're, you're in Korea and you're looking at what's happened to the, to the Japanese end, you're like, hmm, we got to stay competitive, get more competitive. Maybe we should devalue our currency. So this is a big deal. This is a big, big deal. And, of course, the talking heads on CNBC aren't, you know, saying anything about this. So we've got inflation persistently high. Rates going up need to go up. Real rates are still way too low. Earnings estimates just starting to roll over. A big slowdown, if not outright, recession looks pretty likely. Valuations are not cheap. The public is still all in. Shrub, you got to come back here and talk about flows again. I love when you talk dirty to me about flows. Um, it's like, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Alternatively, when Shrub was in here on the weekend, we were saying, what could possibly go right? You know, And the question I posed to him was a serious one. I struggle. I really struggle to see the bull case. Like, what am I missing? What am I? What have I got wrong? I always make things too complicated. I argue with myself and I change my mind. And, you know, it's, it's just, because you never really know. You got to test yourself. And so one of the things I get out of this room is when you have smart, smart folks like Three Aces or Shrub or Mac Ox or whatever, Nikoski coming in here or Jackson, and, you, and we can push the ball back and forth and figure out what do we got wrong here? What do we got right here? And that's why this room, this room, I mean, you guys get a lot out of it. I get a lot out of it because I love talking to smart people. I love talking to you guys. I may have more experience, but you guys come up with questions and perspectives that you know, are very different from mine and takes me out of my own personal thinking. And that's really the value of this room. All right. So um, I don't know where the heck Julian is. I'm going to try and call him again. Three aces. Um, good to see you, my friend. How you been? Hey, my brother. Good morning. How are you? Good. Three aces. Could you just, uh, without too much grandstanding, I need five minutes to go find Julian. So maybe, I mean, I would just, you know, what occurs to you? You've been around a long time. Let, 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 let's not talk about Elon Musk. Let's not talk about Tesla. Right. Let's just talk about market structure and economies. And, you know, you and I, you know, the oil price, you know, commodity prices, just, you know, and for those of you that know you, three aces don't know, I'm sure most of you do. He's been in the mining industry for you know decades and runs a gold company in Guyana right now. So he knows a lot about this stuff. So, so three aces, what, what, what do you, what do you think about the real economy of Marx and that whole thing? And I'm going to, I'm going to disappear for five minutes. So don't do anything stupid. All right. Th thanks. Three yeah. Days. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, uh, as George said, an emerging markets guy in the mining industry, I made the metals for the, the battery industry, the EV battery industry for a decade in Africa. <clears throat> now I'm in the gold business. So, I, I'm looking at this inflation situation, which seems to be the hot topic, you know, which is affecting so many different things. 
And personally, uh, Shrub and, and Mount Gox, Shrub, you're going to come up. Um, you know, I'm looking at this as being 90% fiscal policy and 10% Fed policy, right? And that's why I think the Fed was caught so off guard and looks to be so far behind the eight ball. You know, if, if you dissect, and Bill, please come up too and, and chat about this because you're the one who, uh, who sparked this in me, this idea. Um, you know, if you look at the, you know, the, the, the semiconductor um, industry in the burnt, you know, the, the, the Taiwanese fire and all that stuff that's affected used car prices, even in my business, to get a dump truck now from Caterpillar is nine months um, because of the chips, right? That has nothing to do with the Fed, right? I put a, a posted a chart in the nest when I was in Southern California in Newport Beach there for a little while before moving back out. Um, there were hundreds, it looked like, of boats sitting off the off the, the coast. Why? Because of the because of the lockdown policy, the PCR test policy, the COVID policy. Nothing to do with the Fed. You know, so if we look at this situation here, piece by piece, you know, the food, right? All the processing plants were shut down. The butcheries and the, the uh, arbitoires were, were shut down. This, and, and, and then to add insult to injury, right? They pumped $5 trillion worth of, of stimulus into the system. And then if you look at the real estate market, you know, we have spaces in the evening Tuesday, eight o'clock, I'm on a every, you know, on a space every week and we have various people come in. Um, and, you know, so that's tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, if anybody's interested. You know, we had a gentleman the other day who talked about delinquencies. He's a mortgage servicer. He has hundreds of thousands of, of loans that he services. He said over 10 percent of his loans that he's servicing are delinquent. But. They're all in some form of COVID, you know, forbearance, moratorium, and so on and so forth. So, you know, everybody's looking at this, this, you know, monetary inflation situation as if it's, you know, all the Fed. And, and quite frankly, I, I think it's very little to do with the Fed. Now, I'm not condoning the zero interest rate policy for a decade, but it didn't create any inflation. The inflation came with the lockdowns and the stimulus last year, right? So, so I think that there's potentially an upside surprise. Sorry about that, guys. We've got some technical issues here. Uh, let's try to restart this room. Three aces. I'm bringing you back up, making you a co-host. Three aces, hi. are you there? Yes. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Sorry, sorry about that. We have we got some huge problems here. So. The net of all that is, this room is not going to be with Julian Brigham. He's going to be on next week. It's hilarious what actually happened. Um, we always had it down as 11 a.m. Eastern, but he had it mismarked in his diary. We thought 11 a.m. Eastern was 4 p.m. London time, but he's actually out in Chicago, so it's 10 p.m. 10 a.m. Central. So the whole <laughs> that screwed up because of the time zones. So in any event, this room is not Julian Brigham is going to be on on the 24th. It doesn't this is not going to stop us though. We have the makings of a great room. We're going to keep going. Uh, before you pick up where you were, left off, three aces, I really would like for uh, Jackson and uh, Dave Nikoski to come up because uh, they've always got um, interesting insights as to what's going on. And Carpathia, if you're there, 
please, please raise your hand. Uh, always a lot of fun. Good to hear from you. Um, we've got a terrific room here. Really, a lot of really sharp cookies. So, um, so three aces. I, I don't know. Just where were you, three aces? And, and just get, tee it up. The last two or three minutes, What were you talking about? And then finish your thought, and then we'll go on to some others. Yeah. So what I was saying, George, was I was questioning the 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 Fed's role in the current inflation situation from a monetary perspective. You know, we we had a dovish Fed for a decade. There was no inflation. You know, the inflation came with lockdowns and and stimulus. And if you look at inflation from an industry by industry perspective, the chips and the fire in Taiwan, nothing to do with the Fed. Right. And, you know, so so basically what I thought was possible here um, would be that there might be some surprise um, to the inflation situation, oil notwithstanding, uh, with some of these other industries moving forward, because I personally think that 70, 80, 90 percent of the inflation problem we have is is more centered around the lockdowns and having shut all these businesses down and everything got choked up. So so that was my only kind of filler statement while you were off doing your thing. Thanks for that three aces. All right. So let's keep the ball rolling here. We've got some really sharp cookies in the audience. We've got Jackson. We've got Dave McCoskey. I see Shrub. I wish he would raise his hand. He can come up here. O'Hare, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, let's go to you, Jackson, because I like hear what's really going on in the real world. You've been very clear about the inflationary pressures and made the point repeatedly about how the top line necessarily is not flowing through to the bottom line and how in your business and many other businesses, we see situations where, um, you know, the basic underlying economics uh, have changed. And I, I go back to the great Jim Walker, who was in here two or three months ago, comparing the ex post to the ex ante world where, you know, you're running a business, you're at Starwood, you got, you think you, you know what your costs and revenues are from the brave new world that you're in. You don't really know what your costs are. <laughs> and, you don't really know what your revenues are. And people are just trying to wing it and and, 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 and and trying to use the rules of engagement, the the unit economics of the ex-ante world doesn't really help us in trying to figure out the ex-post world. So, Jackson, I know you tweeted out some stuff the other day. And by the way, you are such a good guy. I don't know why people throw crap at you, but it's like it happens to all of us. You're a good guy just trying to help. And there are some jackasses who, like, you know, take shots at you on Twitter. But, Jackson, could you give us a little bit of uh, – uh, you know, boots on the ground insights as to what's going on with costs. I think you or someone had mentioned the other day, the consumers seem to be balking a little bit at some of the stuff backing off. So what's kind of happening right now in your world, Jackson? Always, always good to see you. Love listening to you talk. What's going on, Jackson? The floor is yours. Yeah. So basically, I mean, it's and you know, Helene Meisler, you know, we, Helene and I had a little back and forth about it too, because she's booking hotel rooms. She's starting to see prices come down. Well, those prices are coming down. And I like the Mike Green reference about the airports, too. You know, because flights have been, uh, you know, the, the passenger counts, after, so airports aren't busy. The hotels, uh, the consumers finally starting to uh, get back to reality. I feel like people are, are really starting to watch what they're spending, <clears throat> things of that nature. I mean, we're seeing restaurant rollovers go down. Um, banquet bookings are coming down, um, which is all good stuff because as we've talked about so many times, and I wanted to remind everyone that Jim Walker space was so special. I've actually referred that to numerous people. I loved his point on the 
travel nurses and the ex exorbitant amount that they're being paid. And I'm even, I've been watching that a little bit too, George, and those jobs are going away. They're not paying 5,000, 8,000, 9,000 a week anymore. A lot of them aren't getting benefits included. They might be getting $6,500 a week, but you know, they're not getting benefits and things of that nature. So everything's kind of slowing down. Um, I just, I'm still with everybody in here pretty much for the most part that equities are screwed and anyone chasing anything um, is, is just, it, it's scary. It, it's very, very scary. And to piggyback on the earlier commentary about the CNBC knuckleheads and stuff, it's just crypto, 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 crypto. It's just, it's, it's disturbing. It's very frustrating. And it's very sad to see. Also seeing T12 rent, uh, rent rollovers continue to come down, like I told you guys ago, on our uh, multifamilies uh, a couple weeks ago. Those are coming down. So um, I'm feeling pretty good about things from our perspective just because of the labor shortages and things that we've been dealing with from the operational standpoint. Feeling pretty good about things as far as being able to get back to somewhat of a normal. I agree with ACEs on the, the lockdowns and things of that, causing all of that inflationary um, pressures. And, and basically, I think that we're all on the same page that it really doesn't matter what the Fed does right now or anytime, any, anytime soon, in my opinion. I mean, I just think that they're completely trapped and we have to cycle through this. We're, I hope we're on our own. I really do. You, you know, what I love the perspective, Jackson, that you bring to, to uh, this room, because some of us just, you know, financial bullshitters are not in the real world. It's really helpful to get grounded in reality. Um, could you just, just speak a little bit more? What's, uh, I mean, if you don't want to talk about, you know, Starwood, maybe the industry generally, um, you, you mentioned that the airport's cooling off a little bit. Uh, what is happening sort of to the extent you can talk about either for your company or other companies, what's happening with respect to pricing and occupancy when it comes to hotels? Yeah, absolutely. This will be the first month. I'm using South Beach as the reference. I know everybody gets tired of it. That That is a whole nother bubble in the sun. Um, but this will be the first month that South Beach rooms have came down significantly. And when I say significantly, I'm talking 250 to $400 a night. Um, that's a lot in the real world, in my opinion. Um, and so we're seeing that. Uh, New York is still just a mess. You know, the, the two flagship properties that we have there, we just haven't seen um, the return of the consumer there at all. Um, and it's a lot of promotional, a lot of uh, strategic partnerships and those comp lines are, are getting better. You know, you're not having to comp everything because people are having a terrible experience, et cetera. Um, but room rates are coming down. Occupancy is coming down. Um, I think we're getting close to the end of the sugar high from, from the leisure and hospitality perspective. Yeah. So Jackson, let me ask you, you say down 250 to 400. I mean, they've gone down 250 to 400 or they're, they're not down to 250 or 400. I mean, Oh no, it, no, no, no. We're still, we're still, uh, average room rate in South beach is still 308. Actually, I can $383 more a night. This is just on the basic across the board. This isn't sweets. This isn't nothing. Uh, 389 and change across the board from where they were in 2019 and that's okay, still okay, okay okay so jackson i mean i, I know I, I get confused you guys have so many brands i don't know which one is which but you say three 389 above average so what's the absolute number now is it like 900 or a thousand or 800 like what is it that that, that, that you said it's 389 above what what is the actual number i'm looking at it right now and it's 829 and that's just your standard room up.
South Beach, 829. Wait, wait, stop, 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 stop. 829 for the standard room in South Beach? And it's, it's, that's up 389 from where it was in 19. Is that what you're saying? Yes, we do have the best hotel on South Beach, but still, it's it's a significant amount. We, yeah, we, 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 which hotel is that one? The one hotel, South Beach. Is, is that is that the W, or is that like the W? Right next to the W. You know, we got rid of the W Wyndham uh, Sheridan brands with the Arraine Bang and uh, Marriott deal back in 2016-17. So I've stayed in that hotel a bunch of times, and I, I refused to stay there last the last few times I went down there just because... I'm not thin enough or good looking enough to hang out with the uh, Euro trash crowd driving Maseratis. And I always felt like I was at a disco pickup joint being in the hotel there. The, the music's blaring. So it's just not my thing. But um, like I had a problem already. Like it's just, just, I'm a cheap guy from New Jersey. Like it just offended. I found it offensive to pay like 500 a night or 600 a night. This goes going back three, four, five years ago. So I was, I would go find like, an Airbnb for like 200 bucks. And it was like, I didn't have to listen to disco music. Okay. There weren't any girls around, but that's all right. I don't need, I don't need the women, but you're telling me that room, that POS room, the, 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 the average room is, is 829 in that place. Like who pays? Like I can afford it, but like, where's this money come from? This is like craziness. Like who pays this? I, I still can't get it because I was in the pool when I was down there a couple of weeks ago and I'm just picking random people's brains, you know, trying to get a feel from where they're from and everything. And I'm, you know, I've done well and I, I don't know how these people can, you know, can afford it. I mean, it's $61 for two 20 ounce frosés. That's frozen rosé people. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. This is a teaching moment, Jackson. I'm learning something today. I know three aces knows this, but Frosé? How do you spell that? What is a frosé exactly? <laughs> it's a frozen rosé uh, mix that's just, you know, made in the old, uh, what's that company? You know, the old company you used to get the slushies from and stuff. Um, but it cracks me up and they just buy them all day, every day. So basically this is a slushie for $30 is what you're saying. Is that, is that basically it? Yes. <laughs> hey, J- Jackson, hey, what what do you think uh, crypto has to do? Do you think a lot of that is attributable to the crypto space in the last couple of years? You know, they I all seem that... to want to be down in uh, Miami, in Florida. Raul Paul does a lot of, you know, conferences down there. I mean, this is a huge community of crypto. So maybe the prices have come down with crypto. I, I wonder if no, there's any here, I don't think it's, no, I don't think it's, no, I don't think it's, no, no, no. You've got, I think it's 400,000, Jackson will know the number. There's in, in part of the bull case for Florida real estate, you've got like three or four hundred thousand people out leaving like freaking New York State, all moving to Miami. Sure. All right, like well, that's in California, they're going to they're going to Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all it's all that. It's not cryptos. Cryptos. Are you ready for this? Well, well, well George, George are you ready for this? I, I'd also say, uh, you know, because I have family and friends in, in the hospitality industry and in, in the boutiques in you know Cape May Avalon area, and you know uh, a lot of uh, hospitality travel was limited. So domestically, they had their best year last year, but that's over now. A lot of people couldn't travel abroad or traveling abroad because a lot of the restrictions have been removed and you couple that with the strong dollar. And that's also affecting tourism here. The strong dollar is going to limit international travel and you're seeing people, uh, you know, taking advantage. Me, myself, you know, they had people coming to their boutique hotels, you know, from different geographic regions of the U.S. that never would have been there. And I think that played a role. Yeah. All right. So listen, I, 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 I'm going to no more co- no more crypto talk. OK, it's a, it's a sidebar. So let's go. We got all the smart people. I want to go in order here. 
So uh, let's go to Dave Nikoski, and then we're going to do Shrub. Uh, so Dave, always love your insights. Um, you're one of the best technicians out there. It's you know, it, 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 it's it's what's going on as opposed to why. We can always attach a narrative to it, but a lot of times the tendency for all of us, myself included, to get caught up in one's own personal thinking. So you were in here a month or two ago, and you were going on about resources, and you and I are on the same page. And um, I'm really glad you're back. So. Maybe give us a little stream of conscience about what you see going on with markets. Well, thanks, George. I appreciate it. And thanks for putting on these uh, spaces for everyone to listen to and at least get some thought processes going for those that, you know, aren't, um, you know, in depth into the market. So I, I love hearing all of your spaces and I think you do a great job. So, you know, one of the, I'm a, I'm a technician by trade, so I have to oblige by charts and form a, an opinion based off of what I'm seeing on the charts. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, you know, I mentioned, you know, some of the things that I was seeing. And I know, again, you're going to give me static, George, and I appreciate it. I can't explain it, but, you know, I'm looking at the emerging markets and even including China. And, you know, I looked at the... Uh, um, Shanghai Composite Index, you know, you're at a 16-month relative strength high against against the S&P 500. You know, I, I have to digest that, you know, perhaps getting 20 to $30 a barrel cheaper oil from Russia might be um, actually beneficial for them, and especially if they're starting up the shipping. Um, I saw Fisker CEO just came out and said that they're seeing uh, at least supplies coming from overseas is starting to uh, at least come back into play. And there, you know, and that was just put out on Twitter while I was listening to the call. Um, emerging markets, you know, you're breaking a multi-year downtrend. You know, the bubble that we've seen has been, you know, predominantly in the U.S. markets with emerging markets underperforming for well over a decade. And it, it, as we deflate, you know, typically, as they say, there's always a bull market somewhere. Um, from what I'm seeing, I think the dollar is in a blow off. Uh, when you look at Japan, which you mentioned, you know, I'm looking at charts like a Subaru chart that, you know, is breaking a, a decade long downtrend and bullishly. And perhaps the, the weaker currency um, is, is going to help them export as they are an exporting country. So, you know, a lot of changes happening. And, you know, I try to find some morsels of light because fear is you know is is a behavior that none of us like we feel anxiety and i think looking for at least some morsels that you know we, we can look at and say hey something's improving when something's really bad somewhere else is the way to approach the market and again i i have to abide by technicals and look for these inflections and attempt to try to understand what may be occurring um with these inflections and looking for uh at least green shoots so, you know, that's the so, one. So, so, so Dave, yeah. let me let me ask you. So, I don't think we disagree really that much. I think yeah. I listened very carefully to um, your words, the way you worded things. Yes, uh, Chinese tech is. If I just pull up FX, if I just pull up KWeb right now, okay, or we could do FXI for the for the general yes. Chinese tech. If I if I just do KWeb, okay, we're at thirty one forty five. Yeah. Okay, we had a spike load at closing of twenty four fifty two. Um, if one was uh, uh, adroit enough to catch the falling knife, okay, fine. That's been a useful bounce. Um, so that's moved up 20, 25%. Uh, FXI, I'm just looking here, uh, has also had a nice bounce. Um, 
But, you know, to, to take it, the FXI, I see we got down to, where were we, 29 or something like that? The stock's 31, 32 right now, so that's up about 10%. But what's really more interesting, 28 was the low, so 28 to 32, so let's call it 14%. What's really more interesting, though, is if you, it's the relative charts. I think that would be very, it might be useful, Dave, because you and I have known each other a long time. What I really like about your work, you're always a very um, good, you focus on relative performance which is the way I roll. And there can be a big difference between relative and absolute performance. So, Absolutely. you know, it, it's one thing to say FXI is up, you know, 14% from the low, okay? It's something else. I'm looking at a relative chart here on a spike basis, okay? If you manage to catch the falling knife exactly in mid-March, you know, up off the lows. I hate that phrase on CNBC, okay? But the ratio of FXI to SPY, that's moved 30%. So, could you speak about relative performance and, 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 and you know, why is relative performance important to you? And, you know, it's you, you could have a situation where you could say, well, FXI is, you know, up, you know, a lot against the S&P. But it could be a situation just where FXI is flat and the S&P does a dirt nap. So talk a little bit about why you focus yeah. on relative performance, David. I think it would well, be very helpful for the room. His, his, historically, you know, money chases performance. And what, what you tend to see is, at least in long-term charts, is when relative performance or relative strength breaks a longer term downtrend. The longer that downtrend, the more important it is. So, you know, look, looking at it day by day and, and concluding something's breaking a two week downtrend is, is, is not a secular change. When we're looking at something that's breaking a 10 year downtrend, it would suggest that at least, you know, over a 10 year period, you know, the sen sentiment is changing. Um, one of the other indexes that I pulled up was the, and I posted on my Twitter feed uh, this morning, was the SSE composite, which is the, the Class A shares. And, you know, there's there's a lot of different names in there. It's not just tech. It's 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 legitimately every A share. Um, yeah, 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 Dave, just for everyone in the room, yeah. just, they can follow SSE, Sam, Sam, Edward. Is that the ticker? What's the ticker, please? Yes, it's the SSE Composite Index. It's a Shanghai index. I always like to believe that the people on the ground in a country know what's going on better than... Yeah, 100%. And, and Dave, is there an ETF that, that attaches to that, that follows that? So the, there is actually a few of them. Okay. Um, is, is there one that people could look at if they're curious and want to follow along? Well, that, that, you have ASHR. I, I know I came across another one today when I was looking at it. I don't have it up in sight. Right, okay, okay, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, familiar, I'm, I'm familiar with ASHR. That's a good one. Okay. So people want to actually see on their on their TD America account or whatever, they can look at ASHR to see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, so let's, and, talk, let's talk about ASHR. So go ahead. So you, you can also Google, you know, Google what other indexes are out there. But, you know, one of, one of the things that when you look at the Chinese market and look at especially tech, one thing that you, you, you certainly can see is that their market, tip, you know, peaked out well a year in advance of ours. Um, so see, seeing at least a change in, in that trend line uh, relative to the U.S. markets, again, I, th I think the U.S. is predominantly the biggest bubble um, that we've seen, and with the damage that you're seeing, at least in in their markets over the last couple of years, it's you know you hope that it's perhaps one of the first to bottom if if we're going to see something. Um, China's providing liquidity. Um, you know they're lowering rates. We're raising rates. Uh, I, I don't know of any other country in the world right now that is reducing rates. So um, keep that in mind. So and again, twenty to thirty dollars lower 
barrel of crude oil, uh, I think is very beneficial. Um, again, I have the same reservations that everyone has and everyone I talk to regarding this is, you know, extremely skeptical, but I can tell you how everyone's. Yeah, Dave, I'm totally with you. So this is actually yeah. great. This kind of takes on the tone of the type of conversations you would, you and I would have a few years back when I was a client. And I think it's really interesting for the audience who has not, you know, uh, had probably has not, does not have access to the high level of research that you have. And by the way, commercial message here i have to say this for my friend dave i'm not a client i've known him forever he's a great guy does really good work um i believe they actually offer a a a, a more uh, modest version of the institutional quality product for individual investors and uh, i'm going to put him on the spot and he didn't ask me to do this but i'm going to put the screws into him if you if you reach out to him and as a result of this conversation in this room I, my, my, my gut says I'll probably take care of it and give you a discount on, on, on becoming a subscriber. And so Dave, do you offer a product for retail investors? Yes, we, we certainly do. Um, yeah, because, we, because your institutional product is beyond the reach. Actually, you know, it's funny. I'd say it's beyond the reach of most individual investors, but for, you know, a boomer investor, it's got, you know, not for a young person, but someone who's got, you know, a million, two million, three million, five million in their retirement or whatever, and you stop and think about the fees that they get charged, wealth management fees or fees for ETFs. They're probably paying tens of thousands of dollars in fees. They don't even realize it half the time. They can even afford your institutional product. But you do offer a more moderately priced retail product. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. And our website is vermilioncap.com. And there's a request trial button that you can you know press on and, and certainly – discuss with us what, what your needs are, and we can tailor something to meet your needs. And, and I would just say what I always found to be useful for Dave, and again, I don't even know you're going to be in this room, Dave, so this is not a rehearsed conversation at all, but it's like tool, tool of friends getting together. What I always liked about D Dave's work was, imagine you're flying an airplane, and you've got this enormous instrumentation panel, and you can't follow all the dials at once. It's just too much. And so you need a co-pilot to point out to you and say, hey, look over here. The, the, the oil lights is, is flashing yellow on the, on the right engine or look over there. The rudder is going or whatever. OK, and the problem is there's so many asset prices moving all over the place. It's hard to focus on everything or use another analogy. I'm big on analogies. The sports guy, let's say you're a quarterback, you drop back to pass and you've got four receivers downfield. And you, you, you miss one of them. You, the guy's wide open in the end zone. You don't see him. You need someone to yell at you. Yo, look at the end zone. So what I love about what Dave does is they follow all this stuff. They do it in a systematic fashion. And they can highlight for you, you know, what's going up, what's going down, where's the relative strength, where's the relative weakness. And what I like about that enormously, A, it's drawing attention to, what, to what, what's moving. But also, uh, and I know I do this. I'm sure most of us do this. We have our own idea what should be happening, what is happening, we have our own narrative, but don't focus so much on why something is happening or rather what is happening. So in other words, you and I may think, oh, gee, you know, energy prices, blah, 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 they should be going up. we got to buy oil stocks. But actually, this is a real example right now, okay? So, you know, energy stocks have been on a tear. We've absolutely killed it with energy. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue in. Once you're done talking about your process, I want you to talk about energy a little bit. Energy has done nothing wrong. Energy is fantastic. The only problem is right here, right now, it's so extended, so overbought. You know, people are like, well, why is Antero down 9% today? All right. Um, well, 
you know, Intero stocks 38 uh, down from 40 a week ago, right? People say, oh, my God, yeah, if you're a tourist and you just jumped in, it's a little bit of a problem. But Antero, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we were buying Antero. Um, hold on a second here. I'm just picking this is one of the strongest energy names. Uh, you, know, we, you, you, you could buy Antero all day long as late as uh, January or February, three or four months ago at 20. So, my God, it goes from 20 to 48 in three or four months. Then title to take a rest. It's so far extended both moving averages, you know, right here, right now. I'd want to see it back and fill a little bit. I mean, I don't know where the where the where the bottom's going to be, but when you have macro tourists that just jumped in, you know, to ride the momentum, they don't know what they are. They can easily get shaken out. So, yeah, you could have this narrative. I have this narrative: energy up and to the right. And you know, I took a lot of energy chips off the table a few weeks ago, so I missed the last run up, but I'm also missing this schmeissing down just out of discipline. Um, but if you, if you if you get stuck on a narrative, and I do it all the time. So I'm not being preachy. I'm just telling you my weakness, and I suspect a lot of you have the same problem. It's helpful to have an objective assessment of what's going on. So as much as I hate Chinese equities, or I hate them, and actually I'm going to tease you, Dave. I'm going to put it back. No, you can't. No, I'm going to tease, tease you. I'm going to tease you. I'm going to tease you. What is the better trade? Let's just use let's just use ASHR as an example. What's the better trade from here? What is the higher sharp ratio trade? What is the higher conviction trade? Long ASHR outright or long ASHR and let's say short the Qs or or the spy against it. Yeah, which, which, I, I would say which, short the Qs and go long ASHR. Got it. So, so, so that's that that that's the better risk adjusted return, if if not absolute return trade. Is that what you're saying? I think it risk adjusted. I think you take some risk off the table. I think the U.S. is is destined to go lower. And I think tech is going to lead the way continuously um, until I see a change in that. That's that's the trade that I would put on. Yeah, that's awesome, because for people who tease me about not not many do, but because I was pretty outspokenly bullish on energy. But when I have my Canadian Royal Mafia friends giving me crap for, you know, oh, you should be more bullish. Why are you taking chips off the table? I'm like, dude, I've run rings around you. You might be happy with your Canadian oil stocks the last year. Mm mm. You, you, you're not competitive. I'm long. I've been long energy and short Kathy. You know, you may be up 150%. I'm up 400%. Eric Nuttall, you know, be jealous. I'm, I'm teasing. I like Eric. He's a friend. All right. So, but this, but this is really a, a sort of comical way or humorous way of trying to get at the point of relative performance. So Dave, speak about uh, maybe what else strikes out to you. In my two cents, I, I think I agree with you on technology. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's relative weakness. I also think consumer looks terrible. So maybe just sort of high level. We're not, I don't like to get into names. I don't think you do either. But sort of high level, what are the picks and pans? Like what sectors do you think still look okay? Let's talk about energy. Is it still okay? Or do you think it needs to take a rest? And what sectors don't you like? I think energy is still in a, within a secular bull market. I think it continues to move up to the right. Um, we're bearish. You know, our, our, I should say we are defensive positions, staples, utilities, um, you know, one interesting thing today is you're possibly on the cusp of breaking the XLU relative strength uptrend versus the S&P. And that makes a lot of sense because utilities actually did not do well in the 70s during an inflationary time period, especially with rates moving up. Staples had a very difficult time in the 70s um, as well because of the high fixed costs. Today we have computers so you can actually see what your input costs are immediately 
Whereas back then you, you had an accountant in a back room and you didn't find out what you paid for goods until several months later. I know I discussed on the call with you and I think it was April 5th, I think was the call that I had with you. Um, one of the things that typically happens in an inflationary environment is a lot of firms will, will move from a first in first out and, and change their accounting to a last in first out. Um, You've seen some companies do that. I believe WD-40 actually did that um, a couple of months ago, for instance. Um, so, you know, those are some of the things that you look for in an inflationary environment is that change in accounting. Um, they reduce their tax liability that way as well. Um, but you're going to see inventories go up. And that's typically what you will see. Um, with a with an inflationary environment. The other area that's piquing my interest is the EEM index is actually breaking a relative strength downtrend. And again, no one wanted the emerging markets for, you know, if you look at the long-term emerging markets index, you know, it's been going down since 2011. The long-term is still, downtrend is still intact, but you're breaking, you know, roughly 16-month downtrend right now in the EEM and it's extended. So if I drew channel lines across the lows and the tops, you're right at, you know, you hit right at the bottom of that channel line. So you may be seeing an inflection there. You know, I would prefer countries that actually have commodities, um, you know, crops, oil, that type of thing um, versus, um, you know, that, it, you know, other than if they, those countries like Japan can weaken their currency, you know, I see that as beneficial for exports um, with a strong dollar. We can certainly purchase more um, or lower priced goods. So if, if China is opening up, you know, you may see inflation tame off at some point. And what I mean by that is you're looking at lumber going down, steel going down, aluminum going down. Um, nickel going down. I, I think that's going to be beneficial to to help reduce right. some inflation. But if we see a weaker, do, you know, a weaker dollar, you, you, you're fighting an uphill battle as well. All right. So I want to go to shrub. Uh, we're going to talk fertilizer stocks in a minute because shrub uh, shrub fertilizer stocks. But one last question before we do fertilizer stocks. Shrub, shrub just hold 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 it for one second. Um, I think crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all this stuff looks like a complete disaster wipeout. Any thoughts on Bitcoin and Ethereum here, Dave? I do not like crypto. I've never been a fan of crypto. You know, you could have made money off of Beanie Babies, one sold for, you know, $1,200. I don't understand crypto. I don't like crypto. The charts look like hell on crypto. Um, I, I think it's the biggest, you know, Fugazi that was ever created. Why the Fed didn't stop in and protect investors earlier. Um, and limit it or pass legislation to monitor, monitor it and uh, rule over it. You know, a lot of crypto investors will sit there and say, you know, if the Fed gets involved, it's going to be good. I, I don't know what the Fed's ever got involved in that. Turn uh, actually, I can tell you, Dave, honestly, if the Fed gets involved, it's not going to be good because I know what the issues are. I've talked to Fidelity and the problem is um, if you're going to have any uh, supervision, any, any, any adults in the room, they're going to put in laws and regulations such that it's going to completely wipe out the whole Ponzi nature of crypto. So trust me, the crypto guys don't know what they're talking about. If you get real regulation, it's going to be lights out. There's going to be no more Luna, no more uh, Celsius. 
I think Twitter's going to Tether's going next. Let's just hold that right there. I want to now bring one of the sharpest guys in the room. For the, uh, I want I want Shrub to come on up. Uh, Shrub, always good to hear from you. Hey, George. Hey, 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 Shrub. So I don't know. We've got I don't know if you know Dave. He's really one of the best technicians out there. And so I don't want to put words in your mouth. Maybe a good place to start is you know what is it that you're seeing in fertilizer stocks? And maybe Dave, you could give your your two cents on what the fertilizer stocks look like. Yeah, look, uh, the fertilizers, it's, it's, a, it's a structural uh, bull case right now. So people uh, loved them uh, two months ago because of, uh, uh, you know, you have 30, 40% of potash coming from Belarus and Russia. You have uh, 20, 30% of urea coming from those areas. So there was a natural, there was a tightness before the war and now there was a tightness after. A lot of these stocks had a massive run up. Uh, and then they got killed recently. Uh, so Mosaic went from 80 to 53. Yuan, uh, UAN went from 180 to 110, 115. So that's why I said last week, you know what? I'm starting to buy these. Um, I chose to buy those uh, instead of adding to energy. It's a good diversification for me. They're very cheap stocks uh, at current prices, you know, two, three times EBITDA stocks. Uh, they have very high yields. Uh, and I think the tightness, speaking to um, uh, people in industry, the, the tightness is going to stay for the next uh, two years. So I think it's a very good diversification play for me, just so we don't uh, load up on energy, although it is in reality a energy play as well. But it's just in a different segment that I think has uh, that's going to be tight. And I think it could be the big theme for the next uh, 12 uh, months into next year, because uh, one thing about... Uh, uh, crops, well, the black, so I was speaking with a shipping guy um, and he told me that their Q3, that he said that it's a, a guy in the dry space. So he said he's having the best year, but Q3 is looking very bad for him because his business is black sea wheat. And he said there's nothing coming out of the black sea for Q3. And that's 25% of the overall business for him and the European dries. So think about it. I think the market is really sleeping on this. So it's something to just repeat. If you don't have Black Sea shipments out in Q3, um, first of all, it's bad for the world. And secondly, it just puts fire again in the fertilizer and ag space. So, um, got it. So we've had this correction in there's a great chart i tweeted out a week or two ago i think you, you tweeted it also or i saw it elsewhere it showed the different subgroups and, and dave mccoskey you could weigh in on this as well people you know commodities is a very heterogeneous group people lot lump them together but there's this great chart i'll put it up in this i gotta find it it showed uh energy uh versus ag versus metals and metals had rolled over already pretty significantly because i guess fears of a, of a, of a growth slowdown Whereas food was still doing okay, but I guess it rolled over a little bit. And energy was still up and to the right. So there was a big differentiate between the different subgroups in commodities. And so if I want to understand you correctly, Shrub, you're saying that you think, given what you learned about the Black Sea uh, wheat shipments, 3Q, you think we're going to have another, you think food's going to start to reaccelerate again? Exactly. I, I think it's something that people are, are asleep because, look, uh, planting is seasonal. It's a seasonal business. So... In June, you stop planting, you stop using uh, fertilizers. So effectively, you know, this softness is partly because, you know, th this planting is done. So you move on to the next one. 
So this softness has a seasonal element to it, not a structural element. So I think it's a very good opportunity to be looking at this now because the, the, biggest, the biggest impact that the war will have globally is actually on the wheat supply. Uh, and it actually amazes me that people were talking about this all the time in February, March, and now no one is talking about it. But in reality, the, the Black Sea shipments are the ones that are going to go to Egypt and Africa. And if those shipments are missing, that's where you have the Arab Springs. So basically, the domino effect we're going to have in Q3 from those missing shipments will be immense. Right. That, make, that makes a ton. Of, that's an excellent insight. I really, really appreciate that, Shrub. And, and for, again, this is this is a wonderful room. Great conversation. Insights like yours. I mean, it's just just phenomenal. Um, so, uh, Dave Nikoski, could you speak to um, the fertilizer stocks in the ag space um, specifically? Dave, are you there? Please unmute yourself. There we go. Yep. Um, we're bullish on the fertilizer stocks. Most of, you know, like UAN is pulled back right near the 200 day. That's, that's my point to buy it is right there. Um, Mosaic has got a bullish flag across the board. They look fantastic. I think it's a secular play as well. Um, that's, that's been, you know, our call on that as well that for several months. Um, even going into, you know, back into a year and a half ago, most of them broke a secular downtrend. Um, what we're seeing in there in that space is exactly what we saw from the 2003 to 2008 run up in oil. Um, and I continue to be bullish on it. I, I don't see that we have any means to, you know, whether it's the administration, but I, you know, everyone's on this ESG role and doesn't want to produce chemicals, um, especially if it's derived from any sort of fossil fuel. And I, th I would be bullish on the fertilizers. I think it's going to run for several years. Got it. And as you look in the commodity arena generally, again, to differentiate between energy and metals and ag, uh, any preferences? Definitely energy. I, energy. I don't see... Uh, I, I think what we're going to see is that you're already seeing it in the housing industry. You're going to see a major slowdown. Um, I think that could put pressure on energy at some point. Don't see it right now, um, but it could it could you know drop demand for energy. But you know we we've tethered ourselves to Europe. What Europe does, we're going to help them, and that's what's the the amount of money we've sent to the Ukraine is is minute compared to what you're seeing in terms of inflation occurring here. And right. the cost to consumers here, right? Um, that's that's awesome. But but is this uh, shrub back to you? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I want to raise today, um, George. Uh, so the flows we covered over the weekend, but I thought it was interesting to talk about the credit market a bit now, uh, because you and I had this discussion a few weeks ago, um, and I think it was underappreciated by a lot, not by you, but by by a few people. It was underappreciated about who the natural buyers for sovereign bonds are at low yields. So you remember we had that discussion. It's like, well, if the Chinese are not buying, if the central banks are not buying, and if the banks are not buying, well, who's going to buy? Right? <laughs> yeah, that was the time. We, we, there was a very pregnant pause. Exactly. A minute, it was about a minute of laughter before we exactly. closed yeah. ourselves. I think, go, go I think we're just laughing between ourselves. Exactly. So, so look, now... Now in the U.S., it's kind of it's still kind of funny and cute that it's going for from you know from three to three point three. So 
okay, maybe it goes to four. I listened to Michael uh, Howell, who's like, you know, massive respect for, for Michael. You know, he thinks that we kind of topped out in yields. Maybe we go a bit higher. You know, maybe we go to four, whatever. Maybe that's the real level. But in Europe, something else is happening. Europe is basically a dead credit market right now. So just to raise people's attention, the 10-year bond of Greece is close to 5% yield. The 10-year bond of Italy is at 4.2%. In terms of uh, points, it's tra- they're both trading around 70, 75 cents on the dollar. So think about the insurance companies, the banks that own these things. They're basically down 25% this year on sovereign bonds, on their safest paper that has 0% risk weighting. 0% risk weighting. And we're talking about levered entities that would not get financing otherwise because if you can buy U.S. paper at 3%, why on earth would you buy Italian paper at 4%, for example? Uh, well, because now we still have negative rates in the, in the EU. But I think <laughs> I may be a bit paranoid because I went through a few sovereign crises in Europe already and I'm not that old. But I think this is, I'm just surprised that no one's talking about this as a black swan. The fact that we might have another, you know, yield blow up, uh, another uh, European uh, mechanism, support mechanism just kicking in. I mean, these guys haven't even finished QE yet and we're here. So I think this is like reading extremely badly and I have no idea how European high yield companies will be able to finance themselves in this environment. I think we only so- have like one or two sovereign ish- high yield issuances in the in the EU for the last few months, huh? Yeah. So, so Shrub, uh, let me ask you this because you're you're in Monaco, wherever you are. Um, so, I've been reading a lot on the European situation the last couple of days and looking at BTP spreads and and all the rest. And um, what's happening to rates? And you know, we we had we had the we had back what was in 2011. I can't even remember. Time flies when you're having fun. The euro almost blew up and it didn't happen and blah 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 and they got out of it, but this time, to me, it looks like it's even worse. So what is your take on the strains that are now starting to appear between, you know, German debt, Italian debt, and given what's happening to the euro, and, and I don't know what your if, you're, if you have a view on the euro as well, but do you think that it's, it's, it's right to be very concerned about um, BTP spreads right now? Do you think it's a potential real risk the market's not focusing on? Well, I think so. Look, I've been, I think I've, uh, I've had this discussion before in the euro that I think it's a euro parity, at least, but actually more like 0.9, very likely, uh, to the dollar. Uh, it's a dysfunctional union. Uh, I'm pro-European, so you know, I'm not a Brexiter or something, but it's a dysfunctional union, so the currency uh, is a reflection of uh, confidence, and there is not much confidence in the central bank. I mean, we have the stupidest central bank in the world. We have negative rates. Uh, still, which is incredible. Um, so put that aside, the currency is taking a hit and will probably continue. But on the spreads, I mean, we're pretty much at a worrying level of spreads without and we're still doing QE. So I have no idea what's going to happen if they stop QE. So I think it's very concerning. The fact that insurance companies lost 25% of their capital on safe paper I think it's very concerning. And I don't really know, um, you know, over the last 10 years, there hasn't been that much deleveraging. We're still talking about 100% uh, debt to GDP for most of these countries. So, look, I, I think 
the war is a catalyst for many things. Uh, usually in times of crisis, the EU gets together and uh, shows their best self, but you can never underestimate uh, the strains that this can have uh, on their finances. Huh? And I, I think the spread is something to really, really watch. I that's why, that yeah, yeah, and that's why, look, I mean, I'm based here. I have no European, exp I was actually structurally short the EU, the Euro, but um, uh, I closed my structural short, but I still have no European equity exposure or, or European bond exposure, like zero. 100%. Yeah, Trevor, as long as we got you, I'll go back to Dave in a second, but as long as we got you, um, could you give us the update? You were very one of the few, one of the early ones to call out, this goes back maybe two months ago, how, I remember you had contacts in private banking or whatever, how uh, Russian participation, you know, in a lot of luxury items, be it yachts or fancy clubs or hotels or whatever, real estate, had disappeared. Some property had gotten really gone offered only, blah, blah, blah. Can you just update us that what's been going on? What are you seeing uh, from the consumption side and the high-end markets, and particularly with respect to Russia? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I actually had an update um, last week on this. So a lot of things are still uh, locked up. So basically what happened is that they had, uh, they had initially frozen everything, including people who were not sanctioned, including residents. So they've gradually uh, reopened for... Uh, accounts of residents, but they still froze everything else for non-residents. And this applies to other countries as well. So if you were a resident, uh, you know, a Russian resident in Germany, your account would probably not be frozen. But if you were a non-resident Russian in Germany, your account would be frozen. Um, so right now we have a very strange situation that's happening. A lot of these, the properties and the yachts are actually completely frozen and inaccessible. So no one can sell them. My, the bankers were telling me that no one can transact. No one can act. Uh, can act. The only thing, they, and I got one, there's one interesting thing, actually. The only thing that transacted was private jets a few months ago um, because they were on lease. And I think they basically were able to just release leases. And also because the prices and demand for private jets was so high a few months ago, they managed to basically clear up their their uh, their private jet uh, backlog because it was like a lease uh, transaction or a sale and lease back, whatever it was. But everything else that's actually owned by Russians is, is locked up and will probably remain locked up. The only country that managed to see actually seize assets was Italy. The reason is that Italy actually has laws against the mafia, so they've invoked some of those laws to take some assets. But that's where we are. It's basically like a standstill right now. That's a, thank you for that. Stay there, Shrub, because I'm sure this is going to be a really interesting discussion. Dave Nikoski, are, uh, are you still there, Dave? I'm here, George. Yeah, Dave, I'm just kind of curious. Let's take the macro view. So Shrub has expressed the, the view that the euro is going to tend to go lower. I agree with that. Um, while the dollar's in a blow-off phase, I agree with that as well. Um, I don't know how and when it's going to peak out. I mean, the Japanese yen is trading like toilet paper. Um, and again, I, I know that we talk about the dollar, the Dixie, different currencies, but amongst the major currencies, Swiss franc, the euro, uh, the yen, the, the, you know, the, 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 the dollar is, 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 is a towering giant. And we can talk about other emerging market currencies that are acting a little bit better or whatever. But anyway, the dollar so far shows no signs of, of, of correcting. 
you're bullish on energy. I don't know what you're thinking on rates from here. But if you could just speak to, because I've been banging on for months about the so-called triple demerit scenario. Uh, to remind everyone, back in the 80s, the Japanese stock market was led by the triple merit scenario. That is to say you had the troika of declining oil prices, declining interest rates, and a strong yen. The strong yen was a positive for the Japanese equity market because it kept capital flows bottled up in Japan. And, and, and together, in combination, those factors fueled the massive uh, bull market that we had in um, Japan. Uh, the Nikkei is one of the greatest bull markets of all time. We know what happened after that. But in any event, in current updating to present circumstances, we have the so-called triple demerit scenario where you have rising oil prices, rising interest rates, and a rising dollar. Those things, ceteris paribus, are all negative for the U.S. equity market. So you've already said you're bullish on energy. Um Maybe give a little context to the energy view, like how high do you think energy prices could go or how high do you think the XLP could go? And then also, what is your view on the euro uh, uh, and, and the dollar? And then lastly, on interest rates, just so if you use the sort of macro framework, if you think about it, risk, it risk, it's broad. Thank you, David. Yeah. So, you know, my, my belief is, is that everyone focuses on the U.S. dollar index. You know, it hasn't changed since its inception back in, I believe it was 71 or 72, with the exception of switching to the euro. So it really doesn't comprise, in my opinion, what we all believe it to be. And that is that the dollar is strong. And uh, I, I think, you know, algorithms, everything's programmed around a, what the dollar is doing right now. Imagine the growth that we've seen in, in third world countries, and we still call China an emerging country, and it's the second largest country in the world. Um, you know, my concern with that is, is that, you know, you're comparing the U.S. dollar index to some of the absolutely most horrendous currencies in the world. And, and still we're not getting trend violations in emerging countries that have grown immensely. Um, my concern is, you know, that would be like looking at the S&P 500 back in 2000 and, and comparing it to today. And what most people don't realize is survivorship bias has replaced almost 60% of the names in it. And so, so in essence, the S&P is not really where it's at right now based on, you know, if we use that 2000 index. Um, I, I think that, you know, at, at some point, everyone's going to figure it out and realize that we're being compared to the worst house in the neighborhood. That's why we're strong. When our house is falling apart, tornadoes are coming over, lifting roofs off and breaking windows and lifting it off the foundation. Because in hey. reality, yeah. Hey, Dave. Yeah, I just wanted to push back a little something on that. I spent the last 10 years in Africa. Um, and in the emerging markets, a lot of these shit currencies you're talking about. And Doomberg, yep. before he was Doomberg, has been an advisor to me for six or seven years now. And we went out and did a correlation analysis at that time, at that time, of okay. many of the currencies that I was trafficking in there in, in the Congo and these kinds of places. Um, and they were actually a bit more correlated to the euro. So my question to you is, is given the euro weakness, um, has that come up maybe and expressed itself in a strength in some of those currencies related to the dollar? That's a question. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, even even taking the euro relative to, you know, many of the third world countries, you, it, it, the euro is not significantly underperforming. 
Um, and, and I would agree with you that most of them are tethered to the euro versus the U.S. dollar. Um, but I, I think the growth of the world and what we're seeing in terms of GDPs of countries has certainly changed in 50 years. And I don't think the dollar yeah. represents so, so, yeah, so, 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 Dave, I think you, both of you guys are right. And it, it, one has to be a little bit careful here because, again, you know, the, the as you rightly point out, the Dixie composition hasn't changed, in, you know, forever. It's mostly euros and Canadian dollars and sterling in the end, and that sort of nonsense. Okay, and, and you're right. The, the percentage of global trade, global connectivity, that's now accounted for by currencies, emerging markets that are that are not in that basket. So this is a different kettle of fish. But let's just go back to, for example, on the capital flows. I, I just want to stay with the euro question because three yeah. raises a very good point. But I don't want to detract away from I want to go back to Shrub's point about the euro, because, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, if you look at the big currencies in the world, you know, the money, I mean, the RMB is not an international reserve currency. Um, and so money tends to go out of the dollar, euros, you know, Swiss francs, sterling, whatever. There's only a limited number of places it can go. We're talking about big liquidity. So specifically to the euro, Dave, what does the euro look like to you? Um, versus the U.S. dollar? Yes. Well, it's horrendous, and I don't think it's going to get better. I, I, I think Europe is done. I don't know what they can manufacture at the energy prices they're paying. You know, they're shutting down smelters. They're shutting down fertilizer plants. They're shutting down refineries. The, it, it, you, you can't process any, any you know, metals or agriculture in, in Europe at the price that Okay. All right. So, 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 okay. So you think the euro is going lower? Fine. That checks with Shrub's sort of fundamental view. So I'm trying to put the pieces of the puzzle here together. So we've got, you think energy is going up. I mean, where could you imagine WTI or Brent going to, Dave? I, I think you're going to see north of 150. Okay. So we got, we got oil going north of 150. We got the euro breaking, breaking the buck, breaking par. And maybe it's a little bit trickier, but let's just pick on the U.S. 10 year. What do yields look like to you? Yields are going to continue to go up until we hammer out inflation, bring commodity prices down. And again, the, the, the Fed is, you know, they can't print, as you said on the beginning of the call, they can't print oil. They can't print natural gas. Uh, they can't print more wheat. I mean, unless we start a new crypto and call it virtual wheat and virtual oil, I, I don't see what, <laughs> what this is going to do. You're so not going to solve so the problem. Dave, Dave, I have to ask you. So, Dave, you're, you're not all in on those... Uh... Was it uh, virtual mortgages on on land in the metaverse, or whatever the hell it was? <laughs> I I think that anyone that's doing that or bought an NFT or a crypto, you're gonna you're you're just gonna, you're gonna live in fear for the rest of your life. <laughs> All right, so Dave, I'm not leading the witness here, but allow me. I am leading the witness here in my prosecutorial fashion. So you just isn't it true, Mister Nikoski, that you believe oil's going up, rates are going up, and the dollar's going up? Did I did I understand that correctly? Yeah, but the dollar is going up against, you know, again, the worst basket. And I think that's what. No, I'm no, I know. I understand that. I understand yeah. that. But OK, OK. So you put those three pieces together. It's like mic drop. And Dave, again, how should people again? I feel like I'm shilling for you, but you've got to You're seeing the ball so clearly. What's your email address? Vermillion? What are you at? your what? what well, they our you on Twitter? At vermilloncap.com. All right. They should follow you on Twitter. All right. So. That is not a good backdrop for risk assets from where I come from. Would you agree or disagree with that? Absolutely. 
Now, so, can, sorry, go, go ahead, please. Go for it. Go for yeah, it. Can I just ask Dave one more? Hey, Dave, so, so again, just, you know, I'm an operator, right? I was on yep. Wall Street three decades ago. Um, so my experience now that I'm talking about is from my personal experience on the corporate side for my companies, right? So I have never sold a single ounce of material to an exchange, to an LME or a Comex or any of these guys. So, a hundred percent of the materials that I've ever trafficked in are, you know, commercial agreements with the Swiss, principally, uh, you know, offtake agreements and so on and so forth. Now, in comes the everything bubble to where pot stocks go up to three hundred and back down. EVs go up. Everything just went parabolic. Spacs, EVs, Kathy Wood, all of it, one group after the next. Real estate. So then all of a sudden comes the end of the business cycle, which is where commodities typically shine before they roll over. And here comes that everything bubble in the machines. I mean, you saw it was uh, Elliott and Associates who was the one who perpetrated the short squeeze uh, on, on the, the Chinese yeah, guy on the LME. You saw that. Yeah. So here come the machines, right? Boom. Now, these markets are, are nothing little markets, even nickel, right? Two and a half million tons a year. Cobalt, 100,000 tons, tin, 200,000 tons. They're nothing, right? So, so here comes the machines and the everything bubble. Finally, they made it their, you know, their way to the, to, the, to the commodities. And bang, you saw that huge, what we saw. Now, I'm just curious. Now, the LME, right, for example, is the gold standard in pricing materials internationally, particularly the ones we're talking about. But, you know, 5%? of those stocks ever hit the LME. Yet the LME is used to price 100% of all goods. And then in comes this, you know, the everything bubble, the, you know, the machines, and they did what they did. What, what portion of the current pricing sort of, you know, you know structure, if you will, fabric of, of, these, of these commodity markets are just because of liquidity relative to supply and demand of the actual stuff. I mean, even during that whole period there, Goldman was bidding for copper 35% below the LME and getting filled in the commercial market. So, okay, so, so three, so yeah. Aces, yeah. Aces, Aces, let me, let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt. I get your question. I'm going to frame it a little bit different. You don't mind my saying so, because Dave is not going to hold himself out to be uh, an expert in market structure for any of these metals, but I think Dave. But I think the question you're really asking—you're giving the reason why it might collapse. But the question you're really asking, and, and Dave is better than all of us put together on price formations and patterns. So, Dave, maybe you could speak to some of the metals Trace is talking about. Like, what does copper look like to you? What does metal look like to you? What is any of the metals that you follow? What, what do the metals charts look like to you? Well, everything had kind of a blow off top. I mean, copper has support right around the $4 mark. Um, you know, I, I would be cautious if we came through $4. You know, the, the one thing that we're, we're seeing and what I mentioned on the call back in April, and I've been saying this to clients, you know, even from the lows, if Tesla is going to move, you're going to want to own copper. You're going to want to own aluminum. Every single EV on the face of the planet is aluminum. I just went to the store yesterday, paid $8.99 for a 12-pack of Coke. You know, I remember a few years ago, it was 
Um, these metals are being consumed. Um, when you look back at World War II, I don't know if many people know it, Brazil has a huge population of Japanese because Japan does not have, you know, uh, any commodities, okay? They import essentially all of them. What you've been seeing over the last, you know, since 2000 on a quiet night back then, you could hear a sucking sound coming from the east. That was China sucking up oil. Now you have India coming on strong. I think that you're going to see more of these countries, if they're going to be the uh, manufacturer of finished goods for the West, they are going to put, you know, people into Africa. They're going to put it into Brazil. They're going to put it into Chile. They're going to consume because they want to develop products for the the biggest consumer in the world, us. So, you know, I do believe that, you know, it once our, our market, market cycle is over, you want to look back at those metals that they're pushing everyone to drive an EV. The, the cost and extent of the metals and materials put into them are, for instance, you use four to five times more. Hey, Nikoski, Nikoski, stop. Technical foul, yep. technical foul. Okay. You're, you're pulling a George Noble on me, okay? You're putting your narrative in, okay? I don't want to hear about your narrative. I'm teasing you, friend. What do the charts look like to you? Well, I mean, they, they're all coming down. I mean, aluminum's coming down. Copper's coming down, nickel's coming down, and again, we're, we're slowing the economy, but you also had China on pause. Now, if China is reversing, I, I think that that could tilt upward, um, and, and I'm going to throw this out there. You know, I was looking at new cars this weekend, went to three dealer lots, there was eight new cars between the three dealer lots. You cannot find a new car. So if that's any degree of, of the shortage of materials out there and what it's doing to the supply chain, I, I think that's right. No, Dave, I get it. But if you were, if yeah. I would just say to you, Dave, turn your brain off, just, just look at your charts, look at your pattern recognition, muscle memory. Would you be, would you want to see more basing action, bottom out action, these metals before you'd want to get involved? Cause to me, I look at them like, you know what, right now, it's kind of on the too hard pile. And then when I think about the narrative, you you really very expertly laid out, you know, the short-term negatives versus the long-term positives. Yeah. So for me, I'm just like, you know what? I don't want to play. So, like, right here, for the average person in the room, we have, a, by the way, people like you. We have over 1,100 people in the room, just so you know. This is going to be heard by probably 20,000 people before it's all done. Um so what? Is, so on metals right here, right now, you're kind of what, what are you kind of in the same camp? Just sort of like just you, you, you're Chauncey Gardner. You, you like to watch. You don't want to be involved. Like what are you saying? What are you saying? I don't want to be involved in the metals right now. Okay. All right. Now where Three Aces has been going is is going on the energy thing. It hasn't. They haven't done anything wrong yet. But but so you would say, well, there hasn't been a trend violation. Da 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 da. But what would it take, like, 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 how much downside would it take for, just like you don't want to touch metals right now because it's too hard, you know, and Henley yeah. Mice always says price follows sentiment. How much damage would it take for you to say, well, you know something, as much as I like the long-term star in energy, maybe this is not a good entry point because you can then make up a bullshit story. Well, you know, the economy's slowing down and blah, 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 blah. And people worried about recession and blah, 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 blah. So, in other words, if you just take the sort of the XOP or I don't know, pick whatever XLE or Exxon or whatever representative issue you want, my concern right now, again, Wayne Gretzky, please call your office. It's not where the puck is, but where it's going. And my fear is 
and I've been guilty of calling this a little bit early. My fear, and, and the fact that oil really hasn't given up much to me is incredibly bullish, powerfully bullish. So allow me to speak out of both sides of my mouth. But how much damage would it take to crude or the stocks for you to kind of take pause? And you may say, well, George, the, the, the commodity is one thing, the stocks are something else. So answer answer that question however you wish, Dave. Yeah. So looking at the price of crude oil, the 200 days at 89.94, I always tell clients when you're extended 20 to 20% above or 20 to 25% above that line, you don't want to be buying it. You want to be trimming it. I'm a trimmer of energy right now. I like it long-term. Long-term trend is intact. I like it better, you know, 92, 93 through time. And again, you know, that's a moving average that's moving up. So, you know, if you, if you got to pull back to 92, 93, in the next few weeks, I would be a buyer of it. Hey, Aces, Aces, you there, Aces? Hey, dude, Aces, yeah. Aces. If, if we print ninety three on WTI, uh, uh. Aces, Aces, Levy, 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 Aces, <laughs> Aces. Allow me to do my um, my, my my margin call invitation. Hey, Aces, um, I understand you something some of that commodity markets. Okay, if WTI was to go to ninety three. What do you think would happen to the energy stocks? Pretend I'm a small child or a golden retriever aces. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, and the funny thing is, is you bring up Barrick Nuttall, right? I've looked at three or four of these Canadian oil stocks, right? Because, uh, you know, every time I say anything about oil, I get dogpiled by the, you know, the maxis there, many of which don't even work in the industry. But in any event, um, a lot of those companies have 30, 40 percent gross margins, <laughs> Right. So you take this 120 oil down to what you're talking about, you know, versus a diamondback that's got 85 percent gross margins, 30 percent net profit margins versus a continental resources that has 83 percent gross margins. I mean, you know, like get, get the fact that, you know, Eric was bankrupted a couple of years ago and needed, you know, the world to come and rescue his portfolio coming out of Sprott, which is basically nothing more than a stock promotion firm. Uh, but you know, the reality of it is pound for pound, those stocks are going to get their wigs rocked. Just, just saying. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah so something like CLR is $20 above the moving average. You know what? Anytime you get that extended, you get some type of corrective action. And I would be a buyer on any corrective action. If oil came down to a hundred, I'd be a buyer. Um, agreed. I think the, the example probably is let's go back to shrub. If he's still there. I mean, I'm here. Let, yeah, so let's use the fertilizer stocks as an example. Hey, I'm still okay. here too, man. Yeah, I, I know, but just taking it slowly, one at a time. This is the way we do it. Um, just fucking shrubs. around. Yeah, no, so, 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 so <laughs> patience is tired, George. Patience is a virtue, dude. You got to hang in there. <laughs> We're going to talk about what I want to talk about. All right, so um, I love having these smart people in the room make, make, explaining this to me because I'm, 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 I'm the golden retriever here. So shrub, I mean, it's the same thing. Go back on. So I want this to go between between um, Dave and shrub. So fertilizer is a perfect example. So shrub, I mean, you know, three months ago, I mean, you got out of the way, but look at how much. And Dave, this is what I'm worried about. Look at how much the fertilizer stocks came in, and how shrub is adroitly picking them up after you've had a pretty big, you know, thirty percent off sale. And my concern is with the energy stocks. Like you could be looking at something like that. I mean, in shrub is that a, is that would you would you agree with that shrub? Or uh, George, on one hundred percent. So that's why in this latest uh, you know correction, that's why I picked up the fertilizers um, because they already took the pain. 
And I think the, okay, let's do, let me tell you two data points that I think are very important. So first of all, yesterday oil was up and the oil names were down. That's, a, that's called a divergence for those that don't know. When you have a divergence like that, it tells you that people are long and they cannot hold, right? So that's why when there is a proper market dislocation, Unfortunately, equity stocks go down, sorry, oil stocks go down with other equities because they're equities at the end of the day. And this is what happened in 2008. I use that chart as an example many, many times. Uh, I think I've tweeted out many times. In 2008, oil, as soon as it crossed $80, $90, it was, so at, at the beginning, oil was going up, oil equities were going up, the market was going down, and then oil kept going up but oil equities didn't keep going up. They, they actually went down with the market. So that was a major divergence. Oil, oil hit 150 and the oil equities were down. Now, can the same thing happen here? 100% it can happen here. And then I'm gonna give you another data point, the second data point that I will give. Um, North Sea oil stocks, so UK oil stocks. Um, they got hit by 30% over the last few weeks. You know why? Withholding tax. UK, sorry, UK, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, wind, windfall uh, tax. So the UK came in and said, oh, you guys are making too much money. And actually, um, the prime minister, he said, well, I, I see these oil stocks. They are only doing buybacks and dividends. So they might as well just, uh, we, we might as well just take their money since they're not doing anything useful with it. <laughs> so... So the oil stocks in the UK took like a 30% hit on the windfall tax of the, of the government. So look, we're at that stage of the cycle where, you know, you have to be very careful. And actually, I agree with 3Ace's point as well. You know, what if, what if like there's a UK, Canadian uh, withholding tax? All these, uh, you know, unfortunately, my, my comrades at COM are going to have a pretty big hit on that day. So you have to be very careful and a bit, you know, more diversified uh, across your, uh, your exposures and themes. 100%. You know what, Shrub, 100%. Um, just let me just help in here real quick. I, you know, we talked, George, we talked about fertilizer stocks going back to last fall. I remember being in one of your spaces talking about fertilizer. We, I also remember talking about refiners. And I think I agree with Shrub and some of the other comments about uh, some of these small Canadian oil plays. I mean, if oil does come down, these highly levered smaller cap names are going to get just destroyed. So the place to be in oil right now, and there's still opportunities, is in refining stocks and the major integrated companies. As far as... Uh, Mosaic and Nutrien, we've been in these stocks for years. We got into these stocks in the low, you know, probably high teens, low 20s back in 1718, uh, based on some of the work we were doing in the space. And, you know, they're still cheap today. They have come off quite a bit, I mean, off the highs. But uh, we're modeling for the next four quarters to be rising uh, earnings. I mean, this, com the, the, this industry has been very consolidated. There's, uh, the margins are just absolutely just off, off the charts. So there's still plenty of opportunity in, in, in some of the fertilizer names. I completely agree. Over the next Thanks year. for that. All right. So hold, hold on. Hold on. We got a million people on the stage here. So I want to do this in order. And I have my reasons for this. Um, it's not in chronological order, but it's in order of who I think is going to say what. So I want to stay on this thread. So I want to go to uh, Stefan, who has an opinion, I think, on oil stocks. And then Alexandra. Stefan, good to hear from you. What's going on, my friend? Hey, George. Uh, first of all, congrats to your Forbes article. And I remember when we started at at Clubhouse last year, when we were going against the crypto scam. Yeah, so you... actually, actually, I have to credit you. 
I did not know. <laughs> I did not know what Clubhouse was until you invited me. So I, I thank you for that. Um, so that, that's no. terrific. That's terrific. It, so, it, so, for it, those, so for those who don't know, he's a really shrewd um, investor uh, based in Germany. He is uh, half crazy like I am. He always has variant perceptions and always very interesting things to say. So, Stefan, I know you want to talk about energy first or whatever you want to talk about. Stefan, the floor is yours. Yeah, thanks, George. And I appreciate all what you're doing. And um, I, I have a different view like George on energy. I, I was in 2008 in oil from from 90 to 20. I was in 2020 from 90 to 20. I was not going minus, but, but I see a lot of diff, uh, similarities to these two years and and my strong view is that we when George is talking about the everything bubble I would be a bit careful to to being short in the e-commerce space or or going again for the lady Casey now have a look at Pindu is the stock just went up 90% so it gets a bit dangerous to to short these e-commerce stocks and on the other side, I think when we look at the ETF volumes, we see a bubble has been created in energy. And look at EQT. Dan Loeb is long the stock. It was one of his stocks mentioned in the last uh, quarterly letter. The stock is just down uh, 15% over the last five days. So what you just discussed, I think, is if we get, um, I don't know, any solution by Biden with the Saudis? London is crowded by by Arabs because of the currency. They are they are big shoppers. They they enjoy the the, the oil life extension for another three to five years. But I think these oil stocks, you know, you can talk about cash flows, you can talk about earnings momentum, but think about cnbc grab if if oil goes to 90 which which i think is where the fair value is excluding the the russian invasion so all the oil blood they they doing on um, innocent uh, ukrainian people to keep the oil price at 120 if that greatest to 90 i think all these discounted cash flows discounted earnings they they not they, they, they will not matter so you will not get the point that hey, we have a great Q2, we have great cash flows, we have great earnings. I think the market will react to a, to a 90 level. And and as always, like Stan said in the podcast, look forward to the next three to 12 months. And I think if you think about where's the oil price in, in six to 12 months, I don't think it will be at 120. That is my my my, my view. And and that's um, what I would sign here, George. Yeah. And, and, and thanks George, for no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. So, Stefan, let me ask you. So, you, you think 90 is a fair price or where it's going to be the next, you know, six, 12 months, whatever. Is that, and I'm going to go to the, so the what is important, but the why, is, is it because you think we're related to that? You think we're going to have a, a, a global recession or, or what's your sort of bigger picture view beyond energy? Stefan? Yeah, look, uh, we, we are moving into the five rate hikes um, window. So it's it's funny that uh, people reacting to the Wall Street Journal article of 75 basis point hikes. This was clear for the last two months. I think uh, that's that's not a surprise now. The the point is that that what what one of the performer speakers also said that the, most of the other commodity prices they already falling. Yeah, you remember we had the ball corp short 
at, at the triangle. The Borokop shot was nice because of the aluminium. And, and, and most of the other commodities, they're already in a, in a, in a move downwards. So, so I think this, this uh, is a situation where we just have to wait. And also, I think an important point is we get the expiry on Friday. I think we get all these long-only followers who are adjusting their portfolios by end of June to look like nice. They have uh, an energy overweight. I think it will get a different picture by, by the end of June. So if the portfolio rebalancing is done, you will get the next move. Do I really want to be positioned in energy? Yeah? And, I, and, and I truly think if, if we get... I think strongly that the oil price can go down from 120 to 90 within five days. You know, look at the UK energy stocks, Serica, Hurricane, Drax Group. They just went down 30% in five days just because of a windfall tax uh, from the UK government. And this, is, this gives you a perfect uh, imagination how the people are positioned. You know, if a windfall tax profit causes these stocks to drop certain think about what the energy stocks will do if the go if the price goes to 90 and as we all know it was not a one-way move like in 2020 we've moved from 90 to 60 then this was like say you move down from a swiss mountain downwards we, we stayed at the 60 level for a few weeks then we moved from 60 to i remember to 50 and then we stayed there again and then we moved to 20, and what was not expected was that we go minus. But we went in the oil market, we went down, down in three stages. And remember the Russian thing with the Saudis, where the Saudis then uh, trapped the Russians, and this caused the, the oil price to fall another $20. So Biden is visiting the Saudis now next month. I think we will get some news where, where maybe Biden is trying at least a bit to save his ass uh, for the next midterm elections. And... So I would be a bit careful with these energy stocks. Have a look at EQT. It's just down uh, close to 20% in the last five days. Then Loeb is long. His other long positions are down <laughs> from uh, from uh, from different uh, ways. Yeah so, so, yeah, so Stefan, let me ask you, because it's not a, if what you, what you say, the scenario is very plausible, very believable. And so I just want to be clear on something. So yeah, okay, so let's say, oil sells off for whatever the reason Biden has some bullshit photo op with the Saudis, blah, blah, blah. Cause everyone, they, they want to get the oil price down. Okay, fine. So let's say just, you know, it's a correction, nothing fundamental. It goes to 90, no big deal. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that, would that cause you to think that probably in that scenario that interest rates would, would come off uh, and then maybe even the Kathy Wood bullshit and all the high PE garbage stuff might go up so you were talking about you know uh one stock that's been up 90 percent the e-commerce thing in the last few weeks i mean couldn't we see it's it's not just you know the last year it's been easy if you're long energy and short kathy wood you made a fortune could it be the next few weeks that if you're long oil and short kathy wood not only are you going to get screwed on the long oil piece of it you could also get screwed on the short kathy wood part of it is that what you're saying no but we are in the entertainment business here on twitter and why are we all here in, on Twitter because we want to see what is the noise and and I am on Twitter to see the noise and when I look at the noise the noise is on energy and this is yeah no, no Stefan, Stefan I agree with you completely just hear me out just stay with me please 
Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So would you, I call it the other way, the Twitter mob. You say, where is the Twitter mob? Where is the, excuse me, there are women in the room. Where's the Twitter gangbang? Okay, it's energy. I get it, all right? And usually when you see a Twitter mob, maybe it doesn't go away immediately, but usually just give it a little time, a couple of months, it usually is a disaster. So I understand what you're saying. Energy is going to go down. But are you also saying that if and when that happens, that the Kathy Wood garbage and the and, and, and the bond market would also rally? It's like a seesaw. You know, energy, energy up, Kathy Wood and bond prices down. Energy down, Kathy Wood and, and, and bond prices up. Would you expect possibly a relief rally in some of the Kathy Wood's rubbish and, and in bond markets? Personally, not not till the end of September. I think that the, the, the big trade is uh, what one other colleague of us said is experience versus goods. And I think this is currently what's happening. People go to Metallica, they go to Rammstein, they go to concerts, they want to be out. They are maybe a bit shy on flying with the airlines still. And I think this is the, the trade for the for the summer, experience versus goods. And And I think this is where you should be positioned. And um, e-commerce, I think people had two years' time to order everything online from sex toys to short skirts. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I, I don't think that this is this trade is... Uh, I, hear, I hear the sex toys having a problem with semiconductors. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and I think uh, the girls are stuffed and uh, the short skirts are, in, are also flying with them. Look at the, the disaster at the London airports going into the Queen's weekend. So, so I don't would buy airlines because of the fuel. I think they, they have a problem with fuel hatching, which is not really discussed. And some people trying to buy into EasyJet or other airlines, and I would avoid that trade. But I would also avoid to hey. buy into e-commerce. And uh, but, but the only thing is, look, George, we are in the entertainment business here on Twitter, and the thing is, what I see on Twitter is there is a big consensus to be long energy, and I have yes. no problem if with oil going to two hundred. My only advice, and thanks for speaking here, is. Be a little bit careful because if we see a sudden drop in oil, nobody will look to the Excel sheets with the nice discounted models on earnings and cash flows. They will just sell. And this, I think, we can can give us quickly a, a 30% drop. Look at the one person that talked about fertilizer stocks. The fertilizer price is down 30%. The fertilizer stocks, they were all consensus longs in German funds. Kali and Salz, OC, consensus long. They all went down 30% in the last four weeks. And, and this is to all the talk that Russia is uh, cornering the market. Fertilizer prices down 30%, fertilizer stocks down 30%. And I think this is something, um, something or maybe Mr. Burgraben can talk about Serica. Serica also went down 30% just because of a windfall tax in the UK. Right. Appreciate that, Stefan. Hey, hey. George, can I ask you? Sorry. So, Stefan, that's fantastic. I, I hope you can stay on stage because we've got a really, really, you're really helping the conversation. We've got a lot of really smart people here. So, just please stay on on stage, Stefan. No, I, I drink my hot day con cola. I'm, I'm, I'm having a nice summer break and, and we'll listen. And, and it's a great ride, George, since last year, since we started on Clubhouse. And it's, it's a pleasure to be a friend. No, it's to good. You and... okay. so, Thank right, you. Is, what do you want to say, Jesus? Yeah, two, two quick things and one question for you. 
So if you look in the nest, Dr. Anas, who's our resident genius, commercial, you know, in, industrial side genius, not, not financial markets, um, he posted an, uh, a chart saying, you know, everybody keeps talking about, you know, supply and supply collapsing in ESG. But if you look at current supplies relative to demand, they're in a 25-year normal range, right? So that's the first thing, and that's in the nest. Now, the question I have for you is – Everybody's talking about all this cash flow that these companies are spitting out. That's great. Um, but is it, it, should they be getting, you know, semiconductor stock multiples like they're all promoting? Or should they be getting utility company multiples because now they're, you know, quote unquote value stocks paying huge dividends? Question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, listen, listen, listen. There's a lot of things going on here. It's complicated. I mean, there's you know, you got to talk about time frames, who the investor class is. You know, they always the stock market. Warren Buffett, in the short run, it's a popularity contest, and in, in the long, long run, it's a weighing, weighing mechanism. Okay, so Stefan's totally right. I mean, in the short run, to the extent you have a lot of macro tourists who are just chasing momentum and stories and Twitter mobs, these guys, you know, the, the Excel spreadsheets are going to be of little help, little support if we get a big down. Um, that being said, if you then go to the spreadsheets and say, okay, what are these stocks going to be worth over the long run? In other words, if you're, if you're like, say you're a pension fund or big institution, and it's like, I don't care about the next quarter. I care about the next, you know, three, three years, let's say, um, you, you might have a totally different, uh, conclusion and probably trying to marry those two time frames. The right way to do it would be to say, okay. I want to be in energy for the long run, and I actually do believe I want to be in energy in the long run. So I, I think both arguments are right. I think there are too many people at the table right now, um, and, 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 and it's quite, you know, if oil sells off for whatever reasons, these these stocks will sell off. And so, if you, But you're running the risk of being too clever by half, because let's be, let's be real about this. I mean, fact of the matter is, despite all the cons- increasing concerns over global slowdown and rising interest rates, the price of oil has done spectacularly well, spectacularly well. I think even Stefan would admit that. All right, and it's only been the last few days where the oil stocks are starting to starting to to take it on the chin. And so for me, I sit up and I take notice. There's information content in that. So I think trying to bridge the two, the short term, which I think we're all concerned about, but that really doesn't begin to address. The longer term issue, and I even stuff I would say, okay, yeah, I could see two hundred dollar oil, yada yada yada. But then I go to shrub, you know, how would you have liked to have bought, you know, nutrient at I don't know what the price is right. The same is eighty five. How would you like to have bought nutrient at one hundred and twenty or O'Hare? You know, O'Hare's been in it forever. He's happy. But how would you like, you know, you're one of these tourists doesn't know what the fuck you own. You bought it at one hundred and twenty three months ago. Now it's eighty five. You're like what? And so and so the risk is. The macro tourists, you know, who couldn't find Calgary on a map of Canada, that these things head down and they're going to hightail it out of Dodge. And so I think it's a multi time frame question. It's not so simple. Uh, and so, you know, in a perfect world, the world's never perfect. I would love to see the energy stocks give us a better entry point in the same way that Shrub patiently waited for the fertilizer stocks to come down. You know, I kind of doubt O'Hare who's forgotten more about fertilizer stocks than we'll ever know. I don't think he was buying at 120. But now that it's at 85, he'd probably say, yeah, you know what? It's probably a good time to get back in these things, all right? So I think it's a multi-time frame 
uh, type of analysis. And I'm going to turn to Dave Nikoski because Dave spoke about what happens when any asset price gets way overextended above its 200-day moving average or whatever moving average. So maybe, Dave, maybe you could just sort of talk about, you know, it's not perfect, it doesn't work every time, but sort of, you know, the weight of the evidence, playing the odds, the discipline of taking profits when you're multi-extended below the moving average and also when you're in the hole, when, you, when you've when you crashed, you know, and you're well below moving average, just sort of mechanistically putting a toe in the water, assuming the long-term chart structure still looks all right. So, Dave, maybe you could speak to sort of trading discipline. How do you think about that, trying to manage around positions? Yeah, I think it's important, you know, no one's, no one's ever lost money taking profits. You know, getting out of a name as quick as you can when it violates, you know, a, a sound support level, a 200-day moving average, you know, I'm not worried about things that violate it, you know, one to two percent, because sometimes we have overreaction uh, in the market and in individual stocks. I think it's important to, you know, rationalize, you know, what your thought, you know, don't fall in love with a stock. They don't know you own it. And, you know, be quick to get out and look somewhere else if, if something changes. Um, the, the price is the price. And, you know, it, every stock goes through a price discovery mechanism. Um and sometimes it, it, you know, will, will drop and below, go below the 200 day, but you, you have to, you know, do as much investigation as you can on, you know, what might be changing. Um, I think that's the important thing to do. Um, you know, I always try to keep my head up and find a bull market somewhere. And I, I think that's, that's what I'm good at is, you know, if the U S markets are falling apart, look for something outside of it. And, um, typically, you know, you, you often get meltdowns. Look at the divergence between energy and what the S&P has done. Look at the divergence between, you know, utilities and staples versus what the market has done. You, know, you can save yourself a, a lot of money by going down 3% instead of, or going up 20% versus falling 20%. So, um, you know, in, in my work that I do with sectors, for instance, you know, I want to say that the average divergence every year is over, I believe it was 34% on every sector. So if you took the so, best uh, sector yeah, from so the did, worst sector. Yeah. So, so the best sector minus the worst sector on average is 34% within a given year? Nine, going back to 1969. So doesn't that mean if you take a sort of market agnostic view and you just want to be, if you had as a strategy, because actually it's a lot of things I like to do. Um, you say, you know what? I don't want to take a market view because who the hell knows? There's so much uncertainty, yada, yada, yada. Instead, I want to be kind of more market neutral. There's maybe a bit a little bit long, a little bit short. But are you saying that, 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 that do you find that it, it's, it's your confidence level, your batting average, your sharp ratio is higher in trying to get relative sector calls correct than it is trying to call the market? That is correct. Got it. If you stick in the top three sectors versus the bottom three, you will do much better. And do you find it's necessary when you get really stretched on a divergence when it just when something's overachieved, like for instance, take energy now versus you know Kathy Woods or whatever, energy versus tech. Do you find it's it's helpful? Are there rules that you use to say you know what right here right now maybe you want to trim a little of this? Absolutely. I always look for the relative strength uptrend violation in a sector versus the S and P. Um, you can run it, you know, if you're doing small caps, you can run it against the Russell 2000. Um, you know, we, we have a, a roadmap that we call a navigator that we, we produce that, you know, 
tracks all the stocks in the stock market broken up into 12 sectors. We have about 430 groups within those sectors. They're all proprietary. So we don't use the S&P or the S, you know, SIC codes. Um, you know, we'll have everything from, you know, home builders, large cap to home builders, small cap. We look at every, every group on a average basis. But that way, if we have a large cap group, we can compare it to the small cap and see, you know, if it's a liquidity issue. Um, but I think that helps to navigate the market better than what the tools that, you know, it, it's much like the, you know, at, at, at Dow, they decided to take ExxonMobil out. Imagine where the Dow would be right now with ExxonMobil in it. You know, <laughs> it, it, so, again, survivorship bias can hurt you or it can help you. And I try to remove that with within looking at our sector and group work versus looking at, you know, what popular tools are out there that, you know, people depend on, because I do not think those tools are nearly as good. Dave, I, 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 I can't tell you how, so how thrilled I am to have you in this room, how much I'm learning. Uh, notice we've changed the title of this room. It's the Dave Nikoski room basically now. So this is a real tour de force and everyone is learning so much from you. This is absolutely awesome. And again, I urge everyone to follow Dave and, you know, I'm sure he's not, a, he would not be uh, opposed to taking on new subscribers if they're, if they're interested and he has a retail product, which is extremely affordable relative to the very expensive um, institutional product. All right. So I, well, I want to do this in order now. So I want to do a, a Cantro. And then we're going to do Carpathia. So, Cantro, what's up? Good to see you, man. Hey, good to see you. Um, I just echo what David said. You know, if any strategist, economist, or, you know, market watcher who's honest will tell you, if they've been in the industry long enough, you know, the market call is the most difficult one compared to the sector call. And I'd even go um, say the factor calls are the most consistent. I wouldn't call, you know, they're, they're, I'd call them the easiest, but I would say the most consistent is probably the most appropriate road. Right. The market the market changes over time. So it responds to different macro variables, higher rates, lower rates, higher oil differently, depending on the composition of the index. Um, and ultimately, the market's always the last thing to kind of fall well before you've seen it in sector leadership. And before that, you've seen it in factor leadership. So, you know, sector leadership, you definitely have more consistent spreads. But you know, at the end of the day, sectors change as well, right? Uh, energy today is not what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So sometimes cyclical patterns in sector leadership don't always repeat because the sector fundamentals change a little bit. You know, tech's another example uh, that has changed a lot, or at least the quality tech, not the Kathy Wood tech um, that hasn't changed. And, and the, where, where there's the most consistency is generally at the factor level. Um, you know, do I want to buy high, low beta, free cash flow yield? So, yeah, I'd say the most, the lowest hanging fruit, though it's not low hanging fruit in, in finding alpha, I would say, and, and our work has been shown, is it's at the factor level because that's where things are most consistent over time. And, you know, today, do I want to buy energy or commodities or ag or do I want to flip it and buy tech? Yeah, who knows how things are going to play out? Uh, at, at, from these major market changes, but you know, I would have a lot more confidence being sector neutral and buying quality fundamentals across different sectors. Uh, and historically, that's been, I'd say, a lot more consistent than trying to say I'm going to try to call the market bottom and call the market top and you know, trade all these unknown inflection points. Uh, so I don't know if that made a lot of sense, but <laughs> Michael, let me ask you because that was a brilliant insight and. Um... 
I love the way you think. We, we kind of have a similar worldview. Just question, because you were making the point on quality already a month or two ago, and I know that was kicking ass. Um, I haven't looked at it that closely recently. Uh, how is, what have been the noteworthy uh, factor um, movements in the last month or two? What's been consistent with your expectations? What's been surprising? And where do you see opportunities right now amongst factor dispersion or if some of the factor bets you prefer to make kind of already played out and we're kind of stretched. So just give us a view of where we are on the continuum of factor bets right now. Yeah. So I'd say broadly, we saw a peak in risk on factors back in March, February of 2021, when all the macro data peaked, when basically things got rate of change basis as good as they were going to get, uh, simply saying the ISM stopped going up globally in, in, in the US. Um, and so that's, you know, that's, that's what ended the risk off leadership, high beta, uh, high leverage, you know, every other speculative factor, people look at junk rallies, you know, that all ended after the first year of the bull market. And then last year, it was fairly style agnostic for much of last year. Last year was more about earnings revisions and kind of staying in the middle. Uh, and this year, you know, I know obviously growth stocks have gotten beaten up relative to value, um, but you know, I think that's really missing what's going on underneath the surface. The worst performing factor, and George, you know, you and I have talked about this a million times. It, it, the worst performing factor this year is companies that don't make money. Now we call it negative earnings. And whether you're a value stock or a growth stock, if you don't make money, you're getting blown up this year. Um, much more than expensive stocks, you know, the worst of the worst has been obviously those that have been, ex well, has, have been expensive. And Mike, Mike uh, I don't, you, just cut, you just cut out. Yeah. Sorry, you, you just cut out. Can you, can you back up 10 seconds, please? I just say, it's, I think it's been more about whether you have earnings or not. Uh, negative earnings has been the worst performing factor this year. Um, and so one of the best performing factors or the better performing factors this year you know, again, I wouldn't say value. Value is not really a factor, you know, and, and I know I say that with my uh, biting my tongue because, you know, Mr. French and Fama would, would agree, would disagree. But the only, end of the day, value is a, a factor that's just a representation of other factors. So, you know, oil's work, you know, people say, well, energy's working because it's value. No, energy's working because oil's going up and the fundamentals are improving at a time where they're not improving anywhere else. Uh, and so I would say, you know, the, uh, what's worked really well this year is dividend yield, you know, short duration, dividend yield, buyback yield, um, and companies that, you know, are highly profitable has been an extremely uh, alpha producing factor this year, you know, just profitability versus right. negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 Michael, pick up on that point. You've made the point consistently. I, I, I cling on to every word that you uh, utter. Um, that you wanted, and I know you kind of rejected this whole value growth argument, and you made, really made the point, just rehearse it for folks again, it's a very important point. It's not about value versus growth, it's more about quality versus garbage. So just like at one end of the football field, you're in the red zone, you don't want to own the Kathy Wood stuff, the high, the unprofitable tech, long duration high PE stuff. Similarly, you don't want to be in the, in the red zone at the other end of the field, where you have the zombie value garbage stuff, which has only been held afloat by virtue of you know, uh, uh, interest rates being so low, and as they normally they get killed. So, yep. maybe just explain a little bit why you want to stay, say, between the thirty yard lines and the forty yard lines. I mean, and, 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 and by the way, has that the last month or two since we spoke about it, has that trade continued to work? Absolutely, and and those are the two factors I'd say are, are most 
prevalent in uh, negative earnings. That's gone straight down. And I could tell you, I, we, we, have, we have an event study tool that looks at how companies with no earnings perform after uh, a peak in the economy or peak in PMIs until you hit a low in PMIs. Every single cycle going back 20 years where PMIs have come down, I think there's about eight of them, um, you have, have, you've, you've seen negative earning companies underperform until the end. And those then are the best stocks off the bottom, which is no surprise. Junk rise, pops the, uh, the most when we do get an ultimate bottom there. Um, so, yeah, this, this idea about staying in the middle, you know, value works when the economy is getting better and risks are declining. And no one can argue today the economy is getting better or risks are declining. Um, I, I'm, I would be a huge small cap value bull, autos, machinery, junk stocks when we hit a bottom in the economy at some point in the middle of next year. That's that's what performed the best out of the lows in 2020, the lows um, 2019 from the bottom, every bottom in the market. Uh, and so on, on the flip side, the best environment for growth stocks, it was in 2019 when we had a slowing economy with, with the Fed cutting rates and we're not in a recession. It doesn't happen that often, but that was what got the whole, certainly the Kathy Wood stuff and the growth stocks really to start to inflate. And then obviously had COVID, which just poured more liquidity into that. So we're not going to be in either of those backdrops until, you know, I think the next backdrop we're in is going to be a more of a risk on recovery next year. Um, I don't think we're going to have an environment where, where companies that are growth long duration that are, don't make any money outperform, you know, for more than a couple of weeks. You know, maybe when we get a Fed pivot down the road in six months or nine months, um, that'll create uh, a rally. And I think that will be the longest bear market rally of this bear market when the Fed finally says we're done. But I don't think that'll be the bottom in the market. Ultimately, that's awesome. That's awesome. So Dave, Dave, quick, we'll go. We'll go with questions there. But David, question, David Nikoski, do you yes. do you try to fi- follow any factors in your work, or just sectors? It's well, we we do a lot of industry. Um, so again, we twelve sectors, and then we break it out by uh, weighted and unweighted, and then we um, break that down into four hundred and thirty individual okay. groups okay. within those sectors okay that's fair that's fair thanks man. but uh, george so, george kind of just at, at the end yeah. of the day you know sectors are just representation of factors you know, I, I know. Their, right I know. and so you know energies now has got positive earnings momentum improving profitability improving balance sheet you know if i would have just said buy me these three factors and not sector neutralize it i'm going to come up with the energy sector today right 100 percent, 100 percent. all right so listen i, I want to keep an order here so I want to I want to go to Carpathia and then we're going to have Stefan with a question. Carpathia, good to see you, man. What's up? Man, good to. It's just a great spaces. Let me uh, real quick three points um, on three aces uh, inflation comment. I was looking. We can combine. I was looking for a backdoor way on the energy. I missed the uh, services and anybody who has any thoughts, throw arrows at me, poleaxe me, whatever. Tell me, you know, I'm just crazy. So I was looking for um, the service. I missed it on the first uh, little rally there in February and March. And I have really good insight. I won't name any names, but to Three Aces point, I'll just tell you, my brother runs a sand unit of a pretty big outfit. And it was very interesting because I was trying to say, okay, what's your sand, you know, look like? What's the, 
will service before I jump in here because they're down 30%. I guess it was Dave or somebody was talking. All right, so here's a back door. Some of these things are down. Um, I'll mention them, silica, drill quip. They're down 30%. And, you know, they have less altitude beneath them. So my brother says, well, we're going to make our numbers because the tonnage cost is up, but our actual tonnage is down. I said, how can that be? And he says, well, the sand out of Wisconsin and Illinois has got to go on the railroad to West Texas. And in their infamous uh, wonder or their brilliance, they fired all the young railroad workers. So they can't rehire them. They can't find them is what they're telling him. And the older guys have all kinds of vacation. And guess what they're doing right now? They're going on vacation. So there's, there's structural things besides it's been so long with three aces was saying how much percent was not the fed. So there's an anecdotal evidence. And then with a warning, I got serious confirmation bias from Dave on the Chinese sector. Now I don't have the, I don't have the stones to do it yet. I haven't placed that trade. I'm watching PDD. I'm watching K web. I'm watching Billy. These things are leaping off my screen and they, if you look real hard, they have a, a, a divergence similar to when it was really hard. George, you know this, November 20. I mean, I had to walk around the ranch three times before I had the stones to buy the energy names in November of 20. But they had a back test and they did the thing. So, Dave, I don't know if you're seeing the same thing. I am. And the third thing is listening to... The gentleman uh, from Germany, what's his name? Uh, sorry, I forgot your name. And the mosaic I put all together here is sometimes, and Countro just said it, sometime in the next three to six months, I think a switch is going to go off. And we're going to switch. Either we get the $90 price or we get a, an overwhelming in the components or they start talking about food and energy is going to be taken out or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And at that point, I, I personally believe the commodities will, will reaccelerate, but you'll also have to contend with a postmortem spasm in the NDX and the Cathy's and everything else. Sorry, George, they're going to jump off the table just because of the structure. But I mean, this call you guys are, are really, when I'm putting the mosaic together and putting the pieces together, the blow off in the dollar, the Chinese names starting to show life. And I think there's a, tr I think that's where we, that's where I want to be looking. I want to be looking without getting clobbered. I want to be looking in oil service without getting clobbered. I want to be looking, you know, in areas that are going to not just have a sort of spasm, um, you know, uh, as we go into 23. So anyway, thanks yeah. for the time, you know, shoot hey. arrows at that, those thoughts, please ask me a question. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So, you know, I recall I, I've been in doing what I do since 87. So I've been through a lot of market cycles. One of the things that is just, I, I, I can't believe is it, despite the move in energy, it's not anywhere near the 2003 to 2008 run. Um, you know, it's fascinating to look back at that time and, you know, in 98 oil hit $10 a barrel. Every major magazine cover said, you know, $10 oil for a decade, like I said, on a quiet night back in 2002, you could hear a sucking sound from the east. You know, one of the things that occurred during that time, and I also run an international product that 
has 7,000 names in it, all foreign stocks broken up by geographic location, by sector and by group. You know, I'm I, I, one of the things that stands out to me is you're, you're breaking, you know, downtrends going back 11 years on all the energy shipping companies. And I recall specifically at that time how many tankers were um, dismantled because oil was $10 a barrel from 98 until 2002. And at that time, you, you created a major run-up in in energy stocks and the shippers i mean you know stocks are out there like dry ships you know when it went up a thousand percent i mean um tremendous moves and when i look at the sector today i can find you know some great looking names but you know my international charts i i think i have six or seven groups of international shipping you know they're they're breaking secular downtrends and i, I really honestly feel that People don't see energy as an issue right now. And it's it's baffling to me that we're not seeing at least valuations and when we're talking about free cash flow, that they're not at levels that are disproportionately bubbles, in my opinion. Um, you know, when, when, we're, when we're talking about tech and we're talking time sales, it's beyond belief to me that someone can come up with that concept. You know, and that's obviously where we've been... Yeah, Dave, 100%. I mean, the remarkable thing is, despite the disastrous performance, truly epic-making disastrous performance, you know, Kathy Wood's taking money in this year. The levered QQQ, TQQQ, which is down, I think, at 70% this year, has taken money in. Energy, there's been no inflows. So it's baffling to me to, to see that you know, that divergence or that thought process, everyone thinks that, hey, we're going to go into a recession, energy will come down. And I think that's what exactly what is taking place in the sector right now. So I'm going to agree with you, you know, if we get down to $90 or nine, you know, $100, I I think that you're going to find the stocks are going to way overcorrect from a $20 decline. And you you know what, listening to this room in Carpathia, I like the way you put the pieces together. I was thinking similarly, when I hear what, you know, Three Aces, Cantro, O'Hare, yourself, Nikoski, Stefan, what everybody's saying in here, and whereas, you know, in, in energy is the investment long from my perspective, I go back to 2000, Dave, and you're old enough to remember this as well. You had, you know, the Schmeissing wall of tech stocks from March to May of 2000, and then you had this big counter trend rally through to Labor Day, the garbage kind of floated back up to the surface before collapsing again. And, you know, it's the middle of June, and the stuff I want on longer term, the energy, like for all the reasons we've been discussing here, I think could have a rough road to hoe here for the next couple of months. And the stuff I want to be structurally short, it's been destroyed, could easily bounce over the next couple of months. So it's all kind of making me think, like, like listen, to me, owning ARC, being long and making money, it feels dirty. It's like, ew. It's like, I don't want to do that. Okay. It's like, because I don't believe in it. I don't believe in the fundamentals of the trading sardines. I also don't have high conviction it's going to happen. So to me, it's a low, it's like, you know, I got to be careful here for what I say, but. Hey, George. Yeah. But so that you just mentioned, you know, in 2000, how we drifted back up into Labor Day. That was entirely the function of the Fed pivot. Right? The Fed stopped hiking in May of 2000, their last hike. And the run-up through October, you saw bond yields melt. 
you had a you had your last junk rally, and yeah, that's definitely a risk for that kind of stuff. You know, the question is, where, you know, are we anywhere near a Fed pivot? All right, okay. So, so, so you're saying, Cancho, that I, 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 that's an excellent point. So you're saying if we don't get the Fed pivot and bond yields continue to go up, like we sh- that's a less less of a risk is, is, is what you're saying. Well. It's going to happen at some point. The Fed's going to stop, right? And they always do. And every single cycle, the stock market goes up, 10-year bond yield goes down. 100% of the time when the Fed's done. Um, it doesn't last forever, but that to me is, is your last risk of getting your face ripped off from all these stocks that are down 80%, 90%. It will happen. I don't think it's now or anytime soon, uh, given the last CPF print. But that, to me, I, you know, what I'm telling clients is that is your biggest risk here, you know, being short all that stuff. I don't think it's an imminent risk, but at some point, that will be the longest bear market rally of this bear market. No, it's an excellent point, Cantro. Stefan, did you want to say something, Stefan? Please unmute yourself. Yeah, I've only one um, thought about the multiples, and maybe maybe there's an expert here in the room about telling me the the multiples of the shippers like Scorpio, like Enough, Transocean, where I think we should belong. And on the other side, I think that that uh, that there are many oil stocks which we should be short, and I I would be interested to hear about the multiples and what you think about. Transocean, Scorpio, enough here yeah. because these are the, yeah. the real well, front yeah, line, the, the real trading animals, which you can trade with options. Transocean, and then yeah. uh, you can make a lot yeah. of money. Stuff on tra- well, I can't. This is Dave. I can't, I can't talk about multiples, but I I do know in you know one of my biggest trades that I ever made was buying Transocean leaps in two thousand four, and I never do options ever. I mean. Um, you know, I bought it and it was a descending triangle at that time and broke out. I'm amazed that it can't get out of its own way right now, to be honest with you. Um, I think that's coming. I think that when you have emerging markets, you know, I listened to one of the calls on, uh, board drilling that does jack up rigs, um, offshore jack up rigs, shallow water. You know, they said the biggest orders they're seeing are coming from, believe it or not, the Middle East. Um, rig is, you know, and I've been following it and watching it and I own it at like a dollar. So, um, I'm, I'm surprised that we're not seeing better activity out of it. Obviously you have Noble coming out of, uh, bankruptcy. You have Diamond Offshore came out of bankruptcy. Um, Valeris VAL is another one. Um, you know, that's been, they've been doing much, much better, yeah. but I think Transocean probably has the best rigs on the market. At least there's no, there, that's what they'll say. There's no doubt about um, that, David. And actually I, I've talked to, yeah. I've talked about rig on, on spaces for, for a year now, literally in many spaces and people, Great. people have been shit talking rig for so long. You know, li- rig is very highly levered company. That's absolutely true. Yeah. On the other hand, yeah. they are also the best positioned company in the industry globally. So you know, rig rates, you know, these platforms are starting to, you're starting to see daily rates creep up and it's not going to take much, oh, Absolutely. you know, it's not going to take much for these things. This is a highly levered stock. You know, this company, you know, in our opinion, we've done a lot of work on rig. It's one of our, our, our big conviction names in our portfolio. We, we've been buying it if it dips and, you know, we've owned it for quite a while. And, uh, you know, this thing is a $20 stock, just in our opinion, based on kind of crew just staying here. We're not, we don't need it to go to 200. Now, if it drops to 50, uh, all bets are off. But if we can trade between say 80 to 110 
rig is going to do very well over the next couple of years. I couldn't agree with you more. And I don't know the fundamentals on it, but I know stock market action, long-term downtrends being broken. And, you know, it's, it's got one hell of a base. If you can clear that $5 hurdle, it's going to be a screaming buy. Yes, I'm not. Yeah, hey, oh, here, let me ask you a question. Since this is space you traffic in, specifically uh, oil service and, and, and whatnot. And by the way, um, Tidewater as well. Tidewater. This is yeah, I want, to ask, so yes. I want to ask you, so, 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 so here, what names do you, do you kind of like in that whole service area? Well, the ones, you know, we run a pretty concentrated portfolio. So, you know, 25 to 30 names, um, you know, 20 on the low end. Right now we have about 26 names in the portfolio. The two that we own, uh, Tidewater and Rig. I mean, we own some others, uh, uh, MPC, we own that. Um, that's been a wonderful stock. And, uh, you know, but as far as uh, this particular space, you know, Rig and Transocean are, are the two that we own. And, uh, I mean, there are others. I mean, David mentioned a couple others. and. You know, I think the industry, the, the sector as a whole will probably do very well over the next few years. Um, but the ones we like the most are, are Tidewater and Rig. I'm not saying you should buy them. I'm just saying that's what we like. That's what we own in the portfolio. There's no, 100%. Uh, there I, get it. I get it. I get it. Okay. Hey, 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 Cantro, you want to say something, Cantro? Oh, it's uh, on a separate note. So if you want to finish this line of thinking, I don't want to interrupt it. No, no, no. Go, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. But the refiners, um, just a, George, just, I think the refiners is a good space to be looking as well. I mean, the, those those companies are going to do very well for the next year. What, what, what refiner names should people be looking at? Again, do your own work. This is not investment recommendations from over here. Everyone's got to be their own man. Well, so, you know, what, yeah, what what, you one like? that we own, just one that we own, uh, we've been in it quite a while, is Holly Frontier, which is uh, Sinclair. Uh, the ticker is Dino. That's a fantastically run company. Um you know, so I mean, look, they're, they're, the thing about the refining uh, sector, uh, along with you know uh, the offshore drillers, is these and the fertilizer. Over the last ten years, these these a lot of this uh, a lot of these companies have been rolled up. They're, they're, this, all these industries have been consolidated. So you know, there's fewer and fewer names in these spaces that operate. So you know, their margins are going to be a lot better than they used to be. You know, the coal stocks, by the way, same thing. These coal stocks, there's been a lot of consolidation in the coal space, and I think that's an area to look. You know over the next two, three years. My confirmation bias, my confirmation bias is shooting off the charts <laughs> on the oil service. Thanks guys. But can I say something? Look at the last five days. And when I look into my, maybe you George, sorry to say that, but give me a quick uh, break. Uh, when you look at the last five days since, um, Madame Chanel Lagarde spoke, and I think that she should be for a long time replaced by by Axel Weber, who is running UBS. Is I think the market has has done a lot of uh, damage in the last three days. When I look into my Excel sheets and I, if I look into my watch lists, <laughs> I can see a lot of damage, and uh, I haven't seen that for a long time. So just some some watch lists they were down. 15 to 20 percent and i haven't seen that for a long time and um and i think that's that's exactly the point not to move away from from where we started i think uh, eqt then Loeb, as i said before just down close to 20 percent and some other names I think it's important to watch why are these energy stocks are down 15 to 20 percent and Stefan, i couldn't agree with you more in my this is people want to know. Like my exposures right now are extremely low, extremely low, because I, I, I peeled out of my energy over the last few weeks. So those really my only longs. 
And on the short side, as things have crashed, I've been peeling back the shorts. But I'll be honest. I mean, in in in, in this could be for either uh, Nikoski or anybody. But you know, I'm sitting here. I torture myself because I see things. I'm, I'm a greedy asshole. Okay, and I see things like Tesla, Kathy Woods, all this rubbish. And I look at Tesla, and I'm on the record. I think it's 200 by the end of the year. And I say to myself, okay, it's 650. Maybe it bounces to 700. You know, Kathy, she's going to be $20 by the end of the year, in my opinion. And I say to myself, do I really care if something bounces 10% in my face, if it's 10% to the upside, but 40, 50% to the downside, should I be worried? And if it bounces, maybe I'll just short more. So for me, for me, my sick way of thinking, looking at the world, there is nothing to buy. Nothing to buy. Zero. The only Agreed. question the only question I have is how short do I want to be? Do I want to be a pig? You know, you know, one way to look at it would be say, okay, George, your real conviction is Tesla's gonna do a dirt nap, it's gonna go to two hundred. You know what? Size the position appropriately so if it backs up 10, 15 percent, it's not gonna kill you. Or do it through options, probably have to do it through put spreads, not puts, because the implied vol is so high. And just leave it alone. That's the investment. In other words, my conviction, I guess I'm going to say, rather than, you know, what is XYZ going to do in the next week or two weeks or next month, that conviction level on any idea pales in comparison to my belief that the Teslas and Kathy Woods of the world are going to be much, much, much lower than, than they are right now. I'll just I'll say one last thing here. It's kind of funny. We had a room two, three months ago. It was back in February, actually. The great Tony Greer uh, was in the room. And we were talking about Kathy. Let me just pull this up right now. And no one has been more uh, bearish on Kathy than yours truly. I was in print from on Twitter from last summer at 1.30. Um, and so, you know, it's all timestamped. So we were in a room with Kathy. No, it's a room talking about Kathy. This is in February, January, February. Stock is around 80. And we're all trying to figure out how much is it going to go down. And I'm like, you know, 50, whatever. And um, Greer pipes in, like, like trying to be a wise ass. He goes, oh, I'm 40 bid for, 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 for ARC. The thing was like 85 or something like that. Well, the funny thing is now, we cut through 40 a month ago. And so here we are. And so... Just like so, you are know, you saying Tony got filled? He, Tony got no. I think I think he, he can't. Filled. I think I think I think I think he pulled the order. Okay. <laughs> so O'Hare, so, oh, here's the point. Here's the point. Just like you know, on the way up, you'll have a beat and raise, and someone says, "Well, you know, we're increasing our price target on Amazon from two thousand to three thousand. Well, the movie's running in reverse. I'm like, you know, right. when, when we got down to Tony's, when we got to my number at fifty, I said twenty five. And the way I got to it wasn't throwing shit against the wall. I just went through her portfolio and took each of the stocks and, and tried to work out napkin math what a reasonable price target was. And I honestly think, I honestly think she's going to have a two-handle before the year's over. And by the way, it's not just valuation. Because go to Stefan's point. Forget about the valuations. When the public decides they want to sell, it's going to way undershoot my estimate of fair value. In other words, she's still been getting money in, and her fund is down yep. 65% this yep. year. 
No, no, absolutely. I, I, think, I think what we've been saying, though, George, I mean, I completely agree with you. I, think, I don't know if it's going to be by the end of this year, but I think certainly within the next several years, we're going to see this thing probably below maybe even $10. I mean, a lot of these companies are just, they're not making any money. A lot of them don't have any revenues. So, yeah, no, no, know, okay, 100%. So, completely completely what's argue but, that? But I got to say, I got to say, you know, could it be 70 before it's 20? Absolutely. And that's the thing that's scary. People I, I know. Go ahead. People are pressing Oh, here, stop, stop, stop. You're just repeating what I say, which is why I told you I've been covering my shorts. I don't like to hear an echo. I'm sorry. Um, and so, it's, 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 so that's what makes it hard right now because yeah. there, there's literally nothing to buy because I think we're looking at a big down. And the short crap, you've been paid at paid handsomely. But then here's here here's the here's the way the market twists plays with your mind. It's like, okay, so you, you cover some of this rubbish. And you're thinking as of like, oh, you know, okay, I was away on, on holiday last week. And I'm like, okay, I just want to think about it. Went to cash. And then I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, oh, look how smart I was. You know, the market's been flat to up, and I'm great at no positions on. And then all of a sudden, out of left field, someone turns the lights out on Thursday, Thursday through Monday. It's like, holy shit. So, you know, this ain't easy. This is not easy. So, to me, I've said this once. I've said it a million times in this room. In a bull market, you're only flat or long, flat or long. In a bear market, you're only flat or short, flat or short. People who try to trade counter trend. It's just idiotic. It, it, it violates first principles.